It's time for Twit This Week in Tech. What a great show we have for you. Brianna Wu, candidate for Congress, is back along with futurist Amy Webb. There is so much to talk about. Elon Musk, he's in trouble again. Those folding phones, does anybody want them? And the weirdest cats you've ever seen. It's all coming up next on Twit. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Twit, This Week in Tech, episode 708, recorded Sunday, March 3rd, 2019. Outrage Moms. This Week in Tech is brought to you by LastPass, Ensure Safer Workplace Password Sharing with LastPass, the number one most preferred password manager. Visit lastpass.com slash twit to learn more. And by Thousand Eyes. Companies that run in the cloud rely on Thousand Eyes. It's the place they go first to see, understand, and improve the digital experience of their cloud-based applications and services. Do the cloud right and improve services for your customers and employees today. Visit thousandeyes.com slash twit. And buy stamps.com. Buy and print real U.S. postage the instant you need it right from your desk. For our special offer, go to stamps.com, click the microphone, and enter twit. And buy Sophos Cybersecurity. In an age of evolving cyber threats, you need evolved cybersecurity. Powered by artificial intelligence, Sophos can detect threats before they strike, killing ransomware, viruses, and other cyber threats dead in their tracks. Get a free security scan and or a free trial today at Sophos.com. It's time for Twit This Week in Tech, the week's tech news as dissected and analyzed with precision instruments by some of the best tech journalists in the world. We, I am just going to sit back and enjoy this show. Brianna Wu is here. She is a candidate for Congress once again in Massachusetts' 8th District. And, of course, a longtime geek, game developer, builds her own car engines, takes them apart, siphons off her own oil. Hello, Brianna Wu. How are you doing? Uh, Happy to, to be here. You. And we're going to talk about cars a little later. Yes. She's a, 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 a longtime internal combustion engine enthusiast i i want to be clear i want to get to like evs just You're working like your way out. out okay i'm working on it okay <laughs> uh we'll we'll talk about that and i'm thrilled to have back because she was just here on friday but she's back amy webb uh our futurist we love amy amyweb.io she is uh she is the founder of the future today institute the author of a number of books her first the signals are talking which uh, we had her on for, uh, where she teaches us all to be futurists. Her brand new book is The Big Nine, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we did on Friday. How the tech titans and their thinking machines could warp humanity. It's all about AI. Amy, great to have you back. Thank you. I always love being here. Oh, it's rare that we get a professor of strategic foresight from the NYU Stern School of Business on our airwaves. It is, because I am the only one. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's not actually that rare. Uh, so you've been oh, on a few on. times. <laughs> uh, I, was good, I was saying before the show, I just wanted to thank you. We had talked the last time you were here, or some time ago, about how you consulted a Hulu show called The First, which is about the first uh, manned mission to Mars. It's fiction. Sean Penn is the astronaut. And it's got a lot of drama in it. And you did all the kind of the future 
uh, prediction for it. And I just wanted to say how much I loved the show. At the time, I, I said, Sean Penn? But he was great. And I really thought he was great. Yeah, thanks for watching it. We had a small but mighty audience. and uh, <laughs> It's worth and watching. I think, yeah, and uh, I think what was so great about the show was that the, the acting was amazing. Um, but this was all about being as true to what's plausible for the future um, as we possibly could be. So it's set in the near future um, and and the world looks different, but eerily familiar, which I think is, is great. Yeah. Like they're all using, and this is one of the things I think we all agree is probably coming, but they're all using augmented reality spectacles that look like regular glasses. Um, but they're, but it's really fun because it, you know, at one point, um, Natasha McElon, somebody will come into her office and she said, let me share this you could see what's going on. She swipes the video over to their glasses. It's so cool. And nobody had a cell phone. And, oh, there weren't any, were there? That's because one of the things that we've modeled, um, we being in my shop, is that um, this is the beginning of the end of smartphones. And we're prop and I, I know that's a hard pill to swallow, given what just debuted at Mobile World Congress. But all of the data point to um, less and less mobile phones, more and more peripherals over the next decade. I bet there's... I a, think that sounds great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I bet there's a precedent for what's happening today because it's the silly season for phones. We got foldable phones. We got snap bracelet phones from TCL. We got the weird form factors. I bet there's a precedent in technology that when sales flatten, People start going weird. That's a sure sign that you're at the end of the line for a pro for a cat. There yep. totally is. Yep. I can tell you exactly. So if you go back to 1998, 99, um, if I'm sure that all three of us were in the same boat. I was carrying around. Not to be fair, I lived in Japan at the time. I had a digital camera that doubled as an MP3 player. Oh yeah, like an right old school digital camera. Yeah. Um, I had a mini disc player. I had a separate Wi-Fi sniffer made by Canary that I, I carry around. <laughs> I remember um, those. Yeah. No, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I had a GPS device that like that connected in a weird way to my um, BlackBerry once I bought a Pearl, and that kind of sort of generated GPS using the um, the waypoints from the, the phone. So like, I had all of these, all of these devices started getting weird, right? And there was this yeah. convergence that happened over the next couple of years. And the end of that convergence was the beginning of the iPhone. So the iPhone comes out and suddenly we have all this compute in just one device and all these features. Well, now two decades later, we're starting to see a divergence back in the other direction as we have things like smart earables, which collect our bio data and also let us play our music, um, smart yoga pants, that <laughs> dog better, right? There's all these other things and the phone is once again retreating into the background. But it's, you know, something I think about a lot is, I, I don't think it's just me. I have started to get the thing where my neck is just killing me from looking down at my phone oh, yeah, all the time. Do you neck. know what I mean? Yeah. And like, just, I don't know, being in this position all day, I don't think humans are meant to bend like that. And I can't wait for it to get <laughs> to the point where it's in your glasses and you just don't well, so have to deal with all of that. And it's not just bending down. So there's some really interesting work um, by a couple of ophthalmo uh, ophthalmological and optometric associations. So not lobbyists, like credible researchers. Um, within the next couple of decades, ov the overwhelming majority of people in Western countries are going to be nearsighted. Um, oh, and the reason wow. for that is, oh, and there wow. is a reason. The reason is that our our biology is not evolving as fast as the technology. And as humans, 
we our eyes have been engineered to see far, not near. Huh. And, and most of us are increasingly, and I happen to know all this because my husband's an eye doctor. So, <laughs> so, so he, there is a whole new um, disease called computer vision syndrome, which causes, it's a real thing. And it causes dry eye and neck cramping, some of the stuff you're describing. And it is all because our eyes were never meant to stare at a screen that like very close to our faces all day long. And certainly right. not, to go between near and far continuously, which most of us are now doing. So that's going to make this transition into wearing smart glasses and possibly contact lenses, though that'll be much further out in the distance. Yeah. Um, that, that will help accelerate that process. We're not meant to sit either, I suppose. I mean, what's that doing to us, sitting in mm -hmm. a chair all day? Yeah, so we're really in an unnatural kind of situation. Jimmy, so are you saying that I wouldn't be nearsighted today? If I, uh, I don't, what did I do when I was a kid? Read a lot of books. I always so, thought that was a kind of a, a not true. No, it, it is true. Oh, so if you're boy. somebody, um, I mean, it's, it's a, it's heritable. So if you have nearsightedness or extreme farsightedness or yeah. whatever else, it's probably because your parents did, but for kids who spent a lot of time reading yeah. or for kids who are now spending a lot of time looking at screens, they have a much higher probability of having sight visions much Holy earlier cow. in life. Holy cow. Ooh. Well, that's uh, cheerful. Um, this is a good lead into HoloLens, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, what's going to happen when we get augmented reality? I I mean, I uh, honestly, once they're like they were in your show, that seems like the glasses that both of you are wearing yeah. and I would be wearing if I weren't wearing contact lenses. And maybe they'll even be contact lenses. And you maybe will have something in your ear so that you can that's hear. Right. And that's right. That seems like so. Do you think that's what's going to replace the smartphone? So again, this is the models that I've been working on for a while, the data-driven models. Um, but right. So so what we are probably looking at is a slow transition away from our smart. Like in a decade, the smartphone functions that we currently have in our Androids and iPhones are going to look a lot like the flip phone of yesteryear. Um, and there will be holdouts, but more and more people will transition into wearing smart glasses, which for a time will still require a secondary device like a ring or a wristband. And in the early days of this, they'll use our phones as connective tissue because the compute will still need to wow. happen somewhere near us. But increasingly, as we've got AI in the cloud and serverless computing and all of these other things happening, um, and we can, once actual 5G networks, not what people are calling 5G <laughs> right now, um, are deployed, uh, we won't have issues with latency, you know, all of the other challenges that we have today. And so that, that transition from thing that we hold in front of our face to thing that we wear on our face um, will become much more seamless and natural. And in the interim, we're doing, you know, you made me think of my uh, Palm 7, which oh, I had. I Remember that? Crazy. I loved it. It I was a Palm, it. but in order to give it wireless connectivity in the days before we had smartphones, they had a crazy antenna. Yeah. And and it, in order to make it useful, maybe you had to get a folding keyboard. <laughs> uh, and I think the folding phones are kind of... In that same goofy ballpark, this is TCL's foldable phone, which turns into a bracelet. Or, uh, is that why you're wearing the flip bracelet? This is yeah, because snap bracelet. Because it kind of is like a snap bracelet. I don't, I don't think that the way that you put it on is like that. Oh, see, I'm terrible at this. <laughs> You've already cracked the screen. <laughs> but here's here's a question I have about screens. So so Samsung has a folding folding phone the fold i swear to god yeah you you look at the s9 the wrong way and that thing cracks 
Yeah, well, how are they going to keep these from falling apart? I don't know. No, the better question is, what's? how do you have a phone case for a folding phone? Right? Well, in a way, I think the Galaxy Fold, because it has a screen on the front, small screen, and then you open it up for the big screen, that's a little easier to put in a case. Because closed, it's kind of like a case. You'd have to have a case that opened up. It's kind of like a so traditional So we're back phone. to like those leather cases that my parents yeah. had with yeah, their a no a notebook case. early. Yeah. I, I don't have, know. I think I, I definitely that, think there's a there's a use case for these foldable phones. Like I get that a lot of people, it seems gimmicky. I really agree with you, Leah, when you're saying like when they start well, a, rolling a out the weird phones, goofy. That's when yeah. it's really. See, that's not. This is a daytime. Yeah, right? yeah that's. And it, and it's a little sm bigger than that. Um, the weird one, though, I don't I don't think what makes any sense is the phone from uh, Huawei, which folds out. So that I don't know where how you put that in a case, because that has its screen on the outside. And but apparently there are cases people are making cases or planning to make cases. The other issue with these is they're ridiculous. The three thousand dollars for the Huawei, two thousand yeah. dollars for the Fold. It we we should also the 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 idea of a dual screen phone has actually been around for a while and yes. there've been a bunch of chinese companies making um literal flip phones so right. screen on either Nokia's side Nokia's got a new one um there was a meizu uh phone out for a while these were crazy looking dual screen phones that very few i never saw anybody using but the the, the difference now is the sort of folding without losing the the pixels I mean, I'm really into the idea of a foldable phone. Everywhere I you go, I carry I carry my iPhone 10 with me, and I carry my 11 inch iPad Pro just because, you know, if I have 10 minutes, like read the New York Times, I just like the bigger screen. It's easier to type on there, and I just think about like a, an iPad. How can they really start innovating on the iPad? It felt like more than the iPhone, they hit a wall with what was bringing consumer value. And I think something you could fold up more easily to put into a purse, I just, that's a gadget I would very seriously look at. There is a question about, though, as you pointed out, this, this one screen that bends in the middle, what's this bend going to end up? How many times can you close that before it starts getting right. a crease? Yeah. This, I kind of like this model. This is more, I think, what you're talking about. This is from TCL. They're not making it. It's a concept. But it's two screens with a hinge in the, in the middle. Uh, you don't. You want a big screen. You want a screen all so, the way across. Yeah, I don't. We actually researched a lot of this going into the the show, um, and ultimately, I kept coming back to folding is interesting, retracting is better, though, right? Um, I I could see a device that we retract, or it, it's almost like tiled, um, and more modular. So at one point, Google had something called the Aura phone, which never actually oh, yeah. went. Into they had a, yeah. Right, they had a little testing bed in. in they inherited this from Motorola when they bought them. It was a modular right. build-your-own-phone kit. The theory right. there was not everybody wants the same capabilities, so you could buy the modules you like and snap them together into a phone, which That's sounds right. so, like a Lego phone. But a little okay. bit, but it, it kind of made sense. And yeah. Sony has been Sony now has these panels, these sort of Sony tiles. Um, and you can fit together any number of them to sort of build your own display. So I could see in a, a handful of years a tile concept phone that, that you know, again, allowed you to build some more functionality. But, Leo, I, 
I have to agree with you. I mean, once technology starts getting silly, that's usually an indication that we're on to something else. And, you know, we how many people use a physical typewriter? How many people use a... Um, I had a brother word processor. You know, just sometimes That was technology. an interim device, right? A little bit of computer, sure. a little bit of typewriter. It had a little that's tiny screen. That's yeah. Right. I, I think we're in the interim device space. That could go uh, on for a while, though, because 5G's at least two or three years off. Definitely. In, in fact, I saw one analyst say, oh, good news, 5G will be available in 2025 to a full 32% of the nation. It's like, well, that's a third of the nation in three years? That's not... Where are the small cells coming from? We're, we've got an antagonistic relationship with NIMBY. China right now. Yeah. Who's going to build these? We're, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot to be figured out. So, I, and I agree with you, that's a prerequisite. You have to have fast, easily available, um, uh, low latency is important too. And that's one of the features of 5G uh, networks. We got to solve the battery issue. Yep. The, the HoloLens is a fairly hefty device with only three hours of battery life, right? So, and and if you start reading about how they actually do the um, you know the lenses inside to go into your eyeball, like this is a very 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 complicated gadget. Like if you start reading about how Hololens and the pupillary distance that they calculate every time you put it on, I just uh, it's like an iPhone. I could always see how that would get to the point of being a mainstream consumer thing that anyone could afford. But I'm looking at the technology for these glasses. And you start thinking about miniaturizing the battery or producing these very, very complicated lenses that really need to be made individually for the person. And I start wondering if it's going to be something like HoloLens or if like that's just a stop off place before we get to neural interfaces. Like so, what's going to be yeah. easier, like replicating that through the eyeball or just telling your brain what you want to see? So... I think the other important thing is um, we, we've gotten used to a mobile phone as a singular device that does a lot of things, whether it's for enterprise or for individuals or for government. As we diverge back out for a time, we're going to have different headsets that serve different purposes. So HoloLens, the, this new version of HoloLens is just for enterprise. It's not for individuals. And it has a limited number of applications. The applications that it does have are pretty awesome. I saw... Um, th there's a really cool application where you can see through walls. So if you work in contracting, in construction, um, you know exactly, they, they can overlay the blueprints, which interestingly is where all this AR started, right? In industrial oh, really? um, assembly uh, lines. Yeah. yeah, that's where it came from. So that's kind of interesting. There are some really interesting uh, applications for training for like surgeons and other things like that. Then there's the magic leap side. Um, which at the moment, the battery pack, the compute sort of happens on your body and the glasses look silly. Um, but the idea there is that those would become a, a more um, easy to access consumer device and the glasses will look more like what I've got on, uh, which is normal looking glasses, um, you know, that, that can also provide that refraction. Um, but then there's this whole other school where maybe the future is more about retinal projection in some cases. So I, again, like, I think this is one of those things where we're going to see wacky, weird technology for the next probably 12 to 15 years as all of this gets sorted out and there's experimentation and there's convergence and divergence over and over and over again. So if you're into gadgets, this should, like we should be in the golden <laughs> era of wacky gadgets for the next decade or so.
I think what uh, I don't know if either of you read uh, Blake J. Harris's new book, uh, The History of the Future. He basically had a ton of access to Facebook and Oculus, and he was there uh, basically chronicling the downfall of Oculus and following uh, Palmer Lucky around for the entire time. You know, if you read why Oculus ultimately failed, I think it's because they had like this, they were overpromising, right? They had this big grand vision of us basically living in Ready Player One. What I like about HoloLens and what they're offering this time is it's, it's such a narrow vision of what you need. A really good example, I ride a motorcycle and often I like to ride motorcycles to like events when I can. You can't touch a smart screen when you're on a motorcycle because you have on uh, gloves, right? Like capacitive touch screen, it can't access that. So uh, a motorcycle helmet with AR built in to show me like map, to show me information that I can't access on a phone, that is something I would very happily pay $3,000 for because it's about my safety. So I think like, I think almost the reason all of these ideas failed is we tried to promise everything. And I think Microsoft is doing the right thing by focusing on just a few things and doing them very well. Contractor schematics, like, you know, doctors and operating rooms, all those things. It's also good for Microsoft's business because it sells yeah. Azure, which is really the really all Microsoft cares about. I wonder, <laughs> and Amy, you could probably correct me on this, but I wonder if we're not making the Malthusian mistake. So Malthus predicted that we, the world population, if it continues to grow at the rate it's growing, will run out of food and everybody will die in like the year 1910. <laughs> it didn't happen. And I think we may be making that mistake with technology because we've been living in this era of Moore's Law where just things got cheaper and faster at, at tw doubling every 18 months. And we kind of expect that to continue, except that I think we're kind of, I believe, we're kind of hitting the hitting the, uh, the edge here, the wall. Battery technology, we're stuck. Somebody's going to have to make an amazing breakthrough. There's some huge paradigm shift. That's it. Because we've been trying to make this better for a long time with little success. 5G, I think, is a lot harder to implement than anybody admits. And there's a lot of issues that are going to get in between us and 5G, including the Huawei issue, which we'll talk about. Computing technology is going to get smaller, but we don't. But interface design has not advanced at the rate it needs to for us. Look at the Apple Watch, which is smaller and clever and has the worst interface ever designed. <laughs> It's, it sells, but but in, despite the interface. Do you see what I'm... It, it, I, I'm yeah. sure as a futurist, you think about this. We can't just assume it's straight line. Sure. So, so right. So as a futurist, my job is not to make predictions. Um, it's to gather data, run models using that data, and make connections to try to figure out where we're headed. So for a while... So, you know, there are some linear throughputs that sometimes make sense, but we've sort of reached this point where um, breakthroughs in one technology tend to cause an acceleration in the research and the breakthroughs in other technologies. Um, the problem is when our patience level and our enthusiasm for technology butts up against reality. And that happens, you know, a lot. It happens, uh, it happened in the 1980s when, um, after lots and lots of promises about artificial intelligence that failed to materialize, 
Um, people started investors, the government stripped away funding um, because the the practical realities and the commercialization of technology didn't pan out the way that that they sort of that the, that the hype had promised. So we do run into a problem over and over again, and it it's cyclical. When um, we do we get these like inflections across lots of different technologies that cause this burst of activity, and then all of a sudden everybody expects sweeping change quickly, which of course never comes. On top of all of that, um, you know, to, in order for us to have, for example, 5G, like who, who's going to build that? It's it's not part of our national infrastructure. Um, we have four major wireless carriers, and at the moment, it would cost a lot of money for them to build out all of those cells. And, and there's, a, there's a lot there. Um, 5G might so be in the same position uh, fiber is. Sure. Now, didn't we sure. think oh, fiber, fiber was going to change the world? I, you know, I have to say, the Trump cities. administration just came out this week, and they're talking about nationalizing 5G and having. Yeah, that is uh, interesting. The, That's a the, good idea. I'm not. I'm not automatically against that. Yeah. No, he, think, their position yeah. is reasonable, which is it's it's yeah. critical national infrastructure. Yeah. The problem is when I hear the Trump administration say that, <laughs> I, you have to read between the lines. It's not really nationalize it. They're they're against nationalization of anything. That's socialism. What they right. really are saying is we're going to have a consortium of corporate interests that will determine. What I'm guessing it's going to be is the American people footing the the bill to so that AT and T can make more money. AT and T and Verizon <laughs> yeah. to put this yeah. infrastructure in place hey, for them. We got, this sounds like a bad idea. We got fiber, me. and 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 <laughs> I've heard it said that we got fiber because of the dot com bust that there was so much money flowing into the markets at the end of the century. People were overbuilding fiber. Much of it's still dark. Uh, and then it crashed. But just the yep. same way we got the railroads in the 18, in the 19th century, and then all the railroad uh, companies went bust. But we still got an intercontinental railroad. We have intercontinental well, so fiber, but it's all dark, right? So a couple of quick things. Um, yeah, correct all my historical mistakes. No, 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 no. Please. The first thing I'll say is we live in a different era. And I think we are less likely to go along with eminent domain for, for the good of everybody. That's right. We're just, our culture has evolved. Right. And so this is why you don't see a lot of transportation changes. Yeah. And to lay fiber means to temporarily disrupt or permanently disrupt some of our streets and some other things. And you know, we have enough uh, transcontinental fiber. We don't have it to the curb. We don't right. have it. Now, the last mile problem, right? The last mile problem. In you know, I'm. I think again, a lot of times the big companies get this get a bad rap. Um, you know, I can I can tell you because I I know some folks who worked on part of this project that in Philadelphia, where Comcast is headquartered, um, you know, a, several times in Philly, in Baltimore, in some East Coast cities. Um, Comcast was working with the local city government to um, to bring fiber, and the city governments, the individual <laughs> city governments, were expecting all of these big concessions and big payouts, and you know, and and um, they thought that they were playing hardball. And in reality, what they were doing was making it so extraordinarily expensive to to lay fiber per foot. That it was easier for Comcast to say, you know what, we we like, why would why, you know, why would we bother? Why are why are we doing this? Um, so, I think I think, the, the, but this is another key piece of this. Whether we're talking about five G or we're talking about AI or whatever technology 
Um, you know, there's always multiple sides to what's happening, and it's easy to blame the big tech companies. It's, it's very easy to complicated. Blame the government. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. Of course it is. Yeah. And Brianna, I'm sorry because she didn't want to talk about politics. She wanted to talk about gadgets. But you know, you no, can't, let's do it. You can't get very far in gadgets without talking about politics, especially infrastructure politics. Yeah, and, definitely. And, and um, yeah, I just so sometimes I feel like uh, we have this the potential and this great vision for the future, but we lack the wherewithal to make it happen for a variety of reasons. And I won't blame. I won't ascribe blame to any one entity. Uh, you know. <laughs> Because it does feel a little science fiction-y to me that we would someday in my lifetime have spectacles that we could send videos to each other like that. I mean, it kind of does. But again, we're if, if it's the case that we're already wearing glasses and increasingly we're going to have to be wearing glasses. <laughs> we're all going to have to because we're blind right. from and, our phones. And if it's the case that I get, you know, technology tends to be – innovation tends to be cyclical, not singular. So, you know, just as it took a couple of times to get – to social media that we all accepted because remember there was Friendster and then MySpace and then Facebook is when that concept finally hit. Um, there have been AR glasses now in existence since the 90s and they were around sure. Google Glass. Sure. You know, um, I think what we're going to start seeing is a rapid acceleration as all of these other pieces fall into place. So it feels very sci-fi, but I think if you had gone back, Leo, to 1998 and told yourself, guess what? All of these crazy things you're using, your Canary wireless sniffer, your Toshiba satellite pro that's heavy enough to double as a self-defense weapon. Uh, but, you yeah, know, I do have to say. They're going to be, this, gonna be the iPhone. Actually, I have videotape of me in 1995 with a Palm Pilot. Or no, I think it was, I think it was actually uh, an Apple Newton saying, someday these will be small enough, they'll be ubiquitous internet, and you'll be able to carry it in your pocket. You'll have always-on connection to the internet. You'll have a pocket computer. That wasn't that hot, far fetched, even in 1995. We, right. we, the technology was there. Maybe I mean, not. That's but, why the Palm Seven Blackberry... came along. Right. But at the same time, it's like we've got to be. We have to be realistic. I mean, I think when I was a kid, we all expected we'd have flying cars yeah, by where now. Where are those? Yeah. And yeah. there's there's a realistic risk to the public if you're giving them like control of a device that can fly. Yeah, I think in the same way. Um, one of the things I thought was so interesting about this book about Oculus is a lot of their research that they did leading into it was about are people going to uh, basically wear this goofy gadget on their head? Right. Uh, and they decide because it's virtual reality and you're in your home. And no like, one can there's see just, you. <laughs> like, you're not worried about the social cost. But when I think about glasses and how you might eventually miniaturize that, you've got to get around the computing power. You've yeah, got to get around the the battery is the yeah. really big one. Like yeah. 3D graphics, I can tell you firsthand how computationally expensive it is right. to like positionally track. So right. I I think I think sometimes you hit a hard limit and I just yeah, that was I have my a hard question. time imagining that. Yeah. Have you know it it is completely conceivable that you'd hit a wall on some technology. Of course what happens is you, you end around and uh and you find other ways to uh, to to get there. But um I don't know. What I've seen and I was down visiting the Magic Leap, Leap guys not too long ago. Um, what I've seen out of that shop, uh, my experience using the headset, uh, to me, this is not a, a big leap at all um, forward. To, to think that we will have that compute, you know, the all all of the all of the now not tomorrow, 
No, no. You know, I, I think a decade from now, um, this is entirely within the realm of plausibility. And if I can just add one last thing about our expectations versus reality, when we think about the future of transportation, um, and for some reason, when we think about the future, we always come back to the idea of flying cars. And we think that oftentimes we're the first ones to be to be disappointed. The very <laughs> first patent, the very first patent for a flying car, it's called the Curtis uh, airplane autoplane. It was filed in 1913, and a concept was built the following year. For every decade since since 19, I'm sorry, it was 1917. So for every decade since 1917, there has been a brand new uh, set of prototypes of flying cars that have actually taken off. And those early models are hilarious. Yeah, that's the Curtis Autoplane. <laughs> Some of those early models are really funny because they were just whatever, like the existing car of the time with some wings stuck on stuck <laughs> on it in a stronger engine. And you, you have to stop and th part of what happened, part of our um, difficulty in approaching the future in a way that doesn't fetishize the future, but instead take a really pragmatic look is, is pop culture. So we've lived with the idea of flying cars for so long that it's really hard for us to conceptualize a, a future mode of transportation that doesn't involve a flying car. And for God's sake, like two weeks ago, Boeing released its latest version of a flying car, which is like a quadcopter sort of thing um, with a like a helicopter cockpit. You know, and instead, there's lots of other ways to get around. So there's tunneling underground. There are personal low energy um, vehicles that were, you know, like scooters and golf carts. And they're all different types of um, futuristic modes of transportation. We just don't we don't um, give them as much credence or credit because they're newer to us. And we have a cognitive bias against accepting things that are new as plausible for the longer term. Oh, that's really a good point. We're comfortable with the ocean of notion of a flying car. Uh, we are going to continue this conversation. I don't want to interrupt it. We have to, uh, but you probably all could take a little break, let your minds cool off for a moment. Amy Webb is here. Her new book is great, The Big Nine. We talked about it on Triangulation this week, how the tech titans and their thinking machines could warp humanity. And she has some great acronyms in here for the Chinese AI giants, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Those are the bats. And for the uh, for the American AI giants, she's got the G Mafia: Google, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, IBM, and Amazon. The G Mafia, <laughs> and and never the twain shall meet. But I'll uh, we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. Lots of good stuff. Thank you for being here, Amy. I really appreciate it. The book is fascinating, and as always, very well written. Uh, Brianna Wu is here. You, you're going to run again, Brianna. You're crazy. I'm already running again. Like this is all we're doing. This is a twenty twenty job. Twenty twenty. So your primary bid? Uh, oh, that's our old site. We've got a completely new one. It's Brianna Wu for Congress. Oh, good. All right, we'll find the new one. <laughs> that's the twenty eighteen site. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay. So uh, Brianna went ran in the Massachusetts eighth. Uh, did not make yep. it in the primary. You have an incumbent who's been there for years in the Democratic yep. Party. Yeah. Uh, but AOC has showed us that uh, incumbency is no guarantee of re-election. That's true. So uh, maybe maybe there's a new breed coming to Congress. And if there is, Brianna's got to be a, 
I got to tell it. you, like I got over 17,000 votes. Nice. Like we got almost half the number that we needed to win. And this is the first time I'd ever run for anything. That's right. So we're coming back. I know what I'm doing now. That's always a plus when you're trying to do something. And, you know, it's not like the people that voted for me last time are going to go away. Like right. we're going to build on that success. Right. Well, awesome. And, and where can people go if they want to find out more and, and contribute? So we actually, uh, we've got a uh, new site coming up this week. That's Brianna Wee for Congress. And you can support my campaign and technologically literate leadership in Washington yes. at uh, supportbrianna.com. Nice. It's, uh, it's an exciting time to be in politics. I would exciting. Think. That's a very diplomatic way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> May you live in interesting times. Definitely. Uh, our show today brought to you by LastPass. We know that you know that the current password system is broken, but no one's come up for with a replacement quite yet. So until they do, may I suggest a little password hygiene? LastPass is a password vault, a place, a, a piece of software that works on. Every platform you use, Mac, Windows, Linux, uh, iOS, Android, works with every browser to generate long, strong passwords you couldn't remember in a million years. But don't worry, LastPass remembers them, records them, stores them securely. They're so encrypted that only you can read them. Not even the folks at LastPass can read them. They're only decrypted at device level and, and makes it easy to do, makes it convenient. So for so long, we've been talking about the trade-off between convenience and security. Well, this is one security trade-off that actually is more convenient because LastPass will fill in the passwords in your browser, on your mobile phone, iOS 12, Android. Now you just get to an app that you want to log into. LastPass fills in the password. It's actually fast and fun. You won't worry about reusing passwords because LastPass will generate new passwords for you. In fact, they even have a great security check and a new feature in LastPass that I noticed just the other day will warn you when you log into a site you've used that password elsewhere and give you the chance to clean that up. LastPass is used, it's, it's the number one password ma manager out there. It's been used, it's used by 13 and a half million people worldwide. But it's also important for business, and that's really what I'd like to pitch you today. Your business, and if you own a business, you know that, you know, you have to have employees and you know that most of your employees don't know as much as you do about security, about passwords. They're still using monkey123, their dog's name and their birth date. Or worse, they're posting it on the post-it note on the front of the monitor. Or even worse than that, we know more than half employees share passwords, not only with other employees, but with friends and family. You need LastPass at work. It'll keep your passwords safe. You can actually give employees access to vital assets without giving them passwords. You let you have complete administrative oversight. You can set master password requirements, enable password resets, restrict access when needed, over 100 policies. You get actionable security reports, shared folders, which I love. That means everybody in our ops team gets a full set of passwords in the shared folder. You just add them to that group. Same thing with our business department. Protect yourself and your business with LastPass, the number one most preferred password manager. Over 43,000 businesses, including Twit. And we've used LastPass Enterprise for many years, ever since one of our employees posted all his passwords on a public website. Oh, God. Well, oh, no, he, seriously? He was a, yeah, he's a smart guy. He made the website. It wasn't like, you know, Facebook, but it was also a public. <laughs> Once oh, <we've>, no. <laughs> yeah, we took it down real quick and 
installed LastPass. <laughs> I got Leo. I had a nightmare this week because I had someone on my team. They were working on uh, like our financial credentials, and they, I found out. I was glancing at our team email, and I found out that they were just emailing their passwords, like all of our financial credentials, yeah. to each other. And I hit the roof. Because oh, they will people, do that. People in that you go into politics, you don't necessarily think about information security. And this is why the DNC was hacked in That's 2016 because right. people don't That's think right. about this stuff. So you better believe like we are looking at solutions like LastPass. Well, you You've need gotta it. You gotta take need this it. seriously. <clears throat> we use it and we started using it ever since that happened. <laughs> uh, you can also say, uh, for instance, and we do this, you have to have two factor authentication. Uh, LastPass works with all the devices, Duo Security, YubiKey. Uh, they have their own authenticator. Of course, it works with Google Authenticator. Uh, the, the LastPass Authenticator is pretty cool because it's not a six-digit code. It's a, a push pop-up pop that says approve or deny, which is very easy for employees, but also more secure than text messaging. Uh, I just, I, everything, they've done it all. They've thought about it all. We interviewed Joe Segrist, the founder of LastPass. Steve Gibson looked at the code and gave it his thumbs up. He uses LastPass. That ought to tell you something. Uh, in fact, it's it's it, everybody ought to be using it. There's LastPass for families, LastPass Premium for personal use. There's LastPass Teams if you have 50 or fewer employees. But we use the big boy LastPass, LastPass Enterprise, and I, we would never go back. And it's just awesome. You need LastPass. Lots of people use LastPass, but really all that matters is you and your security. LastPass.com slash twit. And if you are a LastPass fan and you're going to the security conference this week in San Francisco, the RSA conference, uh, I'm going to be hosting uh, the cocktail party uh, after the show at Bourbon and Branch, uh, along with Jason Howell and Megan Maroney. We're all going to be there. I love the LastPass team, so we just volunteered. Hey, if you'll let us in, we'll go. You have to, It's a speakeasy, so you have to have a password to go to the party. But if you're at RSA, just go to the LastPass booth and say, Leo said, what's the password? <laughs> and uh, they'll tell you what the password is so you can get in. So we'll see you on Wednesday if you come to that. LastPass.com slash twit. What is the password uh, in... Um, what's our LastPass password? What, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it shark? What is it? I can't remember. For uh, swordfish, that's it. <laughs> I knew it was a fish of some kind. Swordfish. Uh, let's see here. You wanted to talk, Amy, about this site. This person does not exist. I think it was you, Amy, right? This person oh, does yeah, not yeah. exist. This yeah, is so a really creepy site. That yep. person doesn't exist. That's an AI generated using a technique called GAN. Federative uh, adversarial networks, right. That was built by... A guy named Philip, who's a former, I think he was a software engineer at, at um, Google, and he just took a publicly available um, uh, GAN and uh, system built by NVIDIA. Do you and, do you have to have a bunch of faces in a database? Well, I mean, there are, there are plenty of corpora that are available. Um, NVIDIA actually built something like this simil uh, somewhat similarly not too long ago. And if you go on the site toward the bottom, it was there the other day. I don't know if he took it off. Um, there's a little explainer, a uh, couple of links that shows the research and like where all of this came from. There you go. And uh, how he did it. The short answer is um, this is actually not all that complicated to do. Mm -hmm. um, and that is why after this came out, there were many other copycat sites making automatically generated images of other things. Oh, such really? As cats. Oh, yeah. is there a cats version of this? There is. So, so go. So the um, 
Really quickly, generative adversarial networks are kind of like two systems playing the Turing test against each other, trying oh, to fool each other until they come up with something that's believable. And so NVIDIA has been So that's the adversarial system. part. They're fighting each right. other. Oh, and this is a relatively new area, like a new branch of artificial intelligence research. So that's interesting. However, this cat does not exist, will give you <laughs> nightmares because um, some of the cats that are automatically generated look kind of normal. Um, I have seen things. So <laughs> I have keep, seen things. <laughs> I have seen things I cannot unsee. That That's not that bad. I should send you guys some photos. That one's pretty bad. Um, I saw one where a cat's face <laughs> got with Oh, Lordy. Bad. They're really bad. Um, wow. So is this just a poorly designed algorithm? Or well, is it harder with cats? Yeah, you'd it's think there'd be enough cat pictures that you could find a good like set of information <laughs> to interpolate. There's from. a hole in that leopard. Oh, whoa. <laughs> uh, that's I think own. I live with these cats. These look like my cats. That's Some of them are, are not so yeah. bad. Yeah. Oh, I don't know cool. if this is really doing... <laughs> Did you see that? I did. Show it again. I missed it. Oh my, oh my god! So that's a catman, cat, hum, hue cat. It's like a cat. It's a cat per cat. That's yeah. like the fresco <laughs> that they destroyed. That's like the woman who painted <laughs> the face. That church, yeah. That's what that looks like. Wow. Okay, so this but, is probably not the best use of GAN I've ever seen. No, but but it is important because um, this same idea... So if you think about artificial intelligence, from the very beginning, we've sort of built AI with the understanding that it would either beat us or replicate us. Um, so so that is what we're starting... That's, that's what this is. So this person does not exist as a, a generative adversarial network. Um, this is, is a hard, that's a hard thing to do because we are very subtly tuned as humans to recognize flaws, errors. And it, right. this, and this the, looks like real people. These look like people, yeah, you know. Yeah. That's right. I mean, there's some, it's a little janky. So some of the, you can see some, you know. It ain't bad. See, no, it's not so bad at all. It's not bad I, at all. I have some fears about this for like a lot of jank, different reasons. Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to make this all political, but you know, there. One of the ways you find out if uh, someone like harassing you online is a bot is you look at the picture that right. they're using, and generally it comes from another person's uh, like photo online. Uh, there was a piece this week, uh, basically by women of color, talking about what they were talking about is digital blackface, like basically people uh, using avatars of people of color online to kind of oh, yeah. represent themselves. We've had that to happen. Derail, right, yeah. to derail yeah. conversations. Yeah. It's easy for me to imagine this technology being used as another uh, component in, in information warfare to basically you know, give bot armies that much more um Believability might be the word. So I realize, like, this kind of a, you've got two AIs battling each other. It's not hard to do. This kind of technology is inevitable. But I do think it's worth thinking about how this is going to affect information warfare. I'm curious so, right. what and you think about the open AI text right. generator. Because right. that was so, the reason they said, I think this was just a publicity stunt, but I'd, I'd like to hear what um, you guys think. I don't think it was, I know the I know some of the guys that worked on that, okay. that project. So I don't think it was publicity. I think, unfortunately, so quick background. 
Um, OpenAI is a group that was uh, has had some personnel changes, but partially was uh, founded partially by um, Elon Musk and some others. Uh, and it's it's intended to be a consortium uh, where research is done for everybody, not just for singular companies. What they've done is um, built a random text generator, but it, it's it's very good and very convincing. So it basically you start with a human prompt. One example is like a teacher asking a student to write an essay on the Civil War, and the resulting text is, um, you know, really, really convincing. And what's different between that and, for example, Narrative Insights, um, which is an it's one of the companies that's taking structured data like stocks or sports scores and generating automatically content that runs in news organizations. The difference that this is more open-ended and the um, and obviously far more complicated. Yeah, because and we've so had what, uh, who was it? it uh, uh, the, the New York Post or the Daily News has had auto-generated sports stories right, for, for eight for years. Right. But sports so is such a narrow, constrained field right. you could pretty much do it automatically now i would argue that when it comes to college essay writing that may be they, the same. all all of our communications when done well are right. the result of formulas so this is essentially building an algorithm that represents the formula that takes the information and spits it out in a way that that we might but here's what i think is um well the thing that went wrong is that the press release and the way that it was discussed made it sound so scandalous and, and, you know, sort of ma made a big deal out of something that I think is remarkable, um, not like the sign of the apocalypse or something. I, you know, the it was paper like, is very measured. Yeah. In the press release, that's right. they said, we're not going to release this technology because it's too dangerous. Mm. Which, but this is a problem when it comes to artificial intelligence there's an extraordinary amount of misplaced optimism and fear. And I would put that description because the paper was fairly measured and interesting. Yeah. And honestly, it wasn't that remarkable at all. Um, <laughs> however, honest, the yeah. announcement, right. The announcement, um, you know, was, would be in the misplaced fear, um, yeah. you know, and intentionally drawing sort of scandalizing something, which is not good for the AI community at all. Again, it changes yeah. expectations. And the last thing we need is to change expectations and and um, get people, you know, either fired up about investing a ton more money and expecting products really soon or taking money out. We have to we have to go forward with you know clear minds. But um, I do bring it up because it's directly in response to what Brianna was saying. And in fact, they say this in the summary of the paper. We can imagine the application of these models for malicious purposes, yeah. um, uh, information jamming generating sure. misleading news articles, impersonating others online. I think the biggest issue would be perhaps comment jamming yeah. um, with seemingly real comments that are so quickly generated in such volume that yeah. it overwhelms the normal, the humans. And this is just automating what humans... To yeah, because yeah, humans are already malicious. Say, like there are plenty of malicious actors who could write better than this. But there, this there's is automating <laughs> this is automating malicious propaganda. So exactly. instead of having instead of the we the United States employs people to do the same thing that right. the paper is predicting that the GAN could be used for. Exactly. So We're what I would doing, say is yeah. we should always technology always evolves in ways that we don't think through in advance. Something always goes wrong. So it's incumbent upon us to, you know, again, 
lay out far in advance what are the scenarios for the catastrophic scenarios, the pragmatic scenarios, the optimistic scenarios, and think all of this through, which which we should already be doing. There's a lot yeah, of I would, panic, I would, though. I would want to add to that. You know, we don't have a choice whether this is going to happen. Right. I mean, you could have magically every tech company in the United States and all of our startups tomorrow decide, oh, you know what, we're going to set this one out. It's too dangerous. We don't like it. You know, uh, there was a story uh, that came out of the Wall Street Journal just a few months ago talking about how uh, China in using AI for hacking uh, foreign governments. This is something they're really, really getting serious about. So when it comes to propaganda, even if we put the brakes on this, someone else is going to develop it in another country. So, Amy, I would really agree with you. I think the solution to this isn't to ban technology. I think it's to get a lot more cynical in our um, models for like social media. Something I think all of us, like we've got you know, pretty large social media presences, I think we're all used to kind of the the anger mobs that can come towards you. And for me, uh, I, I know I take someone that uses their real name a lot more seriously than someone with two random words and eight digits behind their Twitter handle. I think like the answer for this particular model is going to be we need to put more emphasis on identity. We need to put more emphasis on verifying that people are who they say they are. And I realize that has very serious implications for, say, uh, you know, LGBT people that may be coming out of the closet. They're trying to find an authentic self. They're experimenting with their identity online. I don't want to erase people like that. But at the same time, we've got to be a lot more suspicious that just because a Twitter account exists, um, I've begun to increasingly doubt if there's a real person behind it, if that makes sense. Yes. And in fact, I think the res the actual paper uh, and its summary from OpenAI was much more measured and said exactly that. This is the paragraph mm -hmm. I found uh, most compelling. These findings, combined with earlier results on synthetic imagery, like deepfakes, audio, and video, imply that technologies are reducing the cost of generating fake content and waging disinformation campaigns. So the public at large will need to become more skeptical of text they find online. That's all. Just or, or there are other ways around this too. I mean, you know, there's way, there are ways to digitally watermark content. Um, you know, there are plenty of ways to authenticate. Uh, I think that the key here is most of the content that's distributed online and certainly news organizations um, have not been fast enough to advance uh, you know, they're only recently, and I think in in a large part due to um, um, uh, Craig Newmark uh, of Craigslist, um, who's who's really been focused a lot on trust. Um, only recently have news organizations started to think through the technology side of this. So, you know, I we can't say like there are plenty of ways to create fake content. Um, it's much easier now. It's easier to distribute it. So. There's no way to put a lid on it. So the, the best way around it is to, to figure out how to authenticate real content. Um, to make to, it to more difficult, though, it. there's also, a, a, you know, sometimes people say, well, Twitter and Facebook and, uh, and all these sites would be fixed if everybody just had to be their real person. They couldn't create fake accounts. But there's also a genuine need, I think, for anonymity online. Sure. So that's the challenge is, yeah, if everybody were forced to use their real names and you had to prove your identity before you could post, I think a lot of this would go away because most of these trolls don't want anybody to know it's them. 
But at the same time, it would eliminate some very valuable conversations that occur in anonymity. Yeah. So how do you do that? I, I think a lot of these issues, you're trying to compete to fundamentally different principles here because I think all yeah. of us are here. We value anonymity, right? Like we value privacy online. So if you're talking about and free speech and free speech, if you're talking about authenticating every single person, I would point out that is a policy China employs. Uh, right. and I don't think many people would praise their Internet as one of the more open in the it's, world. It's probably so, antithetical to free speech, isn't it? It's very complicated. These yeah. are difficult well, issues to solve. The the founders, I don't, you know, the, the founders could not possibly have imagined <laughs> no um, the, the world in which we live, <laughs> no, but also not. the ways that our behaviors have changed in in response to all of this technology. You know, there's there's a statesmanship that doesn't exist anymore in Washington, D.C. If you think about FDR, um, who, who suffered from polio, who couldn't walk, you know, who had phys serious physical issues, and it was never brought up. Right. I'm, I'm not... You know, and maybe there were reasons to have brought it up, but it wasn't brought up. And, and I think, you know, he did very well by Americans. The problem is that some of the laws that we have, like free speech, um, don't entirely make sense in the era of technology and certainly not necessarily in an era of automated content generation. So, I, you know, but we, we have to, I think, be more flexible in how we think about what the founders intended. Um, and we have to approach a lot of our information laws with more sophistication than, than we have in the past. And I know that's an unpopular, unpopular thing to say, but this is only going to get worse if we don't shift yep. our thinking going forward. Yep. I, I have to say, I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world if outrage mobs, lost power because you couldn't <laughs> always make sure that it wasn't like, you know, an AI thing running it. I mean, if I critique someone online, my name is right next to that. I've sure had bad tweets like held against me in my professional career. Uh, I just, I don't know. I think like outrage as a, a political force online, I don't think if that if questions were brought into the mix about the legitimacy of that, I don't think that would be the worst thing in the entire world. But that would be the end of Twitter. I mean, if you didn't have outrage, <laughs> you have no Twitter. What? Are, I, that's not how I use Twitter. I have to say. <laughs> oh, every but, time yeah. I say this, there's people like you say, "Oh no, I find great value in it." I, I, yeah. this is how, and I say, "Well, yeah, okay." I don't understand <laughs> you of all people, Brianna, who should hate Twitter. You, I, I keep. Yeah. It was used as a blunt talks. weapon against you. I, it is I upset the NRA this week. It has been a tough week on Twitter. I for think me, if so. I were a politician, I would never use Twitter <laughs> ever. I know the idea, the theory is great. You could communicate directly with your constituency without intermediation, no press in between. But it's also hugely risky, as many politicians will attest. Of, uh, <laughs> uh, so, you, uh, Amy asked a question. What is oh, what just, are you outrage keep saying moms? Outrage moms. I don't know what that is. I don't either, but I can imagine. So, I think I'm offended uh, by it. But I, I are you an outraged mother? I mean, I'm a mom, but like... Mob, not mom. Occasionally oh, mob. Mob, mob not mom. Oh, oh good. No, okay, let's clarify that because I thought you said mom sense. as well. All right, that's good. Oh, gosh. Okay. I was oh, thinking gosh. mothers against drunk driving. I don't know. what. Yes. <laughs> Mobs. About like, say... Uh, so here's an example. By the way, uh, that's a that great show title. Somebody write that down. Outraged moms. Okay, I just... Moms. Okay. Oh. <laughs> 
No, like think about uh, Battlefield uh, Battlefield 2. It came out, they had really exploitive uh, you know, microtransactions in that. And a lot of gamers got together and like basically screamed until EA changed that model. That's a good thing. But on the other hand of that, you have like game developers regularly like harassed online if like a Call of Duty patch changes the strength of a gun <laughs> and people don't like it. Uh, so like it's a tool. It's like a chainsaw. It could be used so as a... I got to ask you a personal question because you were the target, one of the most famous targets of Gamergate. You were forced to move. You've, you've experienced violence. People have thrown bricks through your windows. And I would say, I mean, maybe a lot of that happened, I don't know, on 4chan and Reddit or somewhere. But I think Twitter was probably the primary vehicle of all that. Yeah. And you still support Twitter. I I, I, I really mean this, Leo. I have had dozens upon dozens of talks with Twitter in back channel over the years talking about the policies that failed me and other women. And I've seen them really work their butt off to address those issues. And I could point to at least 10 things that happened to me that Twitter worked to change so it doesn't happen to other women. So I don't think Twitter is perfect, but I do think they have worked to address these issues in good faith, and I respect them for that. Wow. You're a bigger person than I am, Brianna. <laughs> Or a sadist, one or the other. <laughs> Masochist, I think, is the word you're looking for. There we go. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I killed my Twitter account with half a million user Twitter follower Twitter wow. account because you're still on, aren't you? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I see. I killed it, and it's still there, so I don't know what's going uh. on. Um, I don't want to kill it; I want to deactivate it because I don't want somebody to be at Leo Laporte. But uh, that is, and uh, to me, it seems like no good has ever come out of Twitter. I don't know. In the early, early, I hate to be one of those people. Back in my day, yeah, when well, I, else, yeah, when no one was on it, it was great. Um, I'll tell you how I use Twitter. Um, I I found it difficult to have a conversation. Um, so I use it as a listening post, yes. mostly. Oh, I agree. And oh. I use it in conjunction with Nuzzle, which is this really yep. amazing app started yep. by the guy who founded Friendster, and it's recently been bought by Chartbeat. Um, not Chartbeat, by uh, Scroll In, I think is the name of the the company. To Tony Hale, who was at Chartbeat, started his startup. Anyhow, um, what's cool about it is uh, I, I have like, I have dozens and dozens of Twitter lists that I keep private and they're all super granular on very, very granular topics. Um, and I spent, I spent over a year putting all those lists together and they're really representative of multiple viewpoints and I update them all the time. And I, and I use Nuzzle to surface um, when enough people have shared uh, that, that, that those lists follow have shared or posted content, similar content um, it will yeah. get aggregated by Nuzzle. I use right? Nuzzle. So I love Nuzzle. Jonathan Abrams has been on uh, yeah. before to talk about it. That's yeah. a sewage treatment plant. <laughs> what is that's the equivalent of taking the Twitter fire hose and making it drinkable at the other end. Uh, you're not seeing be... Twitter. No. <laughs> it's extracting no, no, no. I... the signals from Twitter. No, every now and then I type in uh, terms that I know are flashpoints. Um, and, uh, it's a horrible, disgusting, awful, I mean, <laughs> bad, really, really bad. And when the whole deep fakes, um, thing was first happening, I guess last December yeah. or so, 
earlier than that. Ugh. Um, you know, a lot of that content was being shared out on Twitter and I was kind of shocked that it, on the other I mean, hand, you got to see what was people were talking about, what was going on. It is a good way to put your finger on the pulse of what's happening. Yep. Yeah, so I use it for that. I use it to, I speak, you know, when I speak at conferences or I do book signings or whatever, um, I can, can engage with put your Twitter handle people. up? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually, I, I have a little script that runs. So for those of you who are listening in who um, speak at conferences, here's a very clever way to use uh, Twitter. So there's a little script. Um, it requires a little bit of know-how and breaking keynote if you use it but um you can you can put in the presenter notes a little you have this script running you've got a little bit of code in the presenter notes and then you can live tweet while you present so um so i'll be at south by this weekend oh that's cool i'm, I'm one of the big featured room there's be thousands of people there i'm going to go through a lot of information we always i always show my tech trends because this is when the report comes out so what i will be doing is um, I will be sharing out and live tweeting my own talk, sharing that's all so, of the data, okay. all of the links. That's wow. cool. That's so a it's a, that's use. a really great way for people. Again, so like if you think of Twitter more as a utility than as a way to communicate with other humans, you know, I think of it as a utility. And I find when I'm specifically using it as a utility, um, it to be quite useful. I think about when Kara Swisher... Jack Dorsey said, oh, let's do a conversation on Twitter oh together. Oh, my God, that was crazy. And it was oh. a complete fail. Oh, I mean, this is the founder of and CEO of Twitter couldn't make the conversation work. That told me this is not a conversation platform. No, it's not anymore, it's, but it is a good utility. And I think if we re – and, you know, years ago, I um, – many years ago, I told Jack that they ought to uh, – this was at the beginning – the sort of beginning of some of the fake issues that we're dealing with now and the harassment and everything else. You know, Twitter's, uh, if you look at Twitter's numbers, their stock, like their valuation, it is I could not buy trending it. upward. I could buy it's it. It's not trending up. It's trending down. Um, Maybe that's what unlikely. I'll do. I'll just buy Twitter. Well, but let's think about it. So this is this should be Twitter, like Trump getting elected should be the greatest thing that ever happened to Twitter. Yeah, the president how much uses that man it. Tweets. Yeah. And yet they're not, like they should be swimming in money and they're not. So if their investors were smart, if everybody was smart, they would turn this thing over to a foundation, let a foundation buy it out, and it should be turned yes. into a newswire for the 21st yes. century. We've talked a lot uh -huh. about that. Twitter is a utility. Twitter you know, owned by, you know, some a a agency. And um, still, you know, have, have functionality still, but, but, but um, enable it. And there are ways to build in different layers of verification and authenticity and all of the other things. But I mean, it, it is not rocket science. If they wanted to weed all the trolls out and to, you know, there, there are ways to make sure that it's humans who are actually sending out content. That That's not complicated. Well, but um, see, just okay. But it, so it you is, just said, Brianna, that you feel like they've yeah. made some positive changes, uh, but sure. not enough. So I, I'll give you an example of one that addresses what you were just saying, Amy. It used to be where uh, Twitter, if someone sent me a death threat and I reported and they got suspended, they could take 10 minutes, make another account yep. uh, and, and just get back on there. Uh, right now, what happens if you get suspended uh, from that and your IP address looks suspiciously like one that just got suspended, it's going to ask you to have to give a phone number along with that. 
I do want to point out, though, that that solution is a very Western solution, because if you start thinking about, you know, around the world, like a lot of people don't have a dedicated Internet connection. They use their phone as their only Internet device. So like these problems, like one of the biggest things I've learned in talking on Twitter about these issues is just because something is a solution in America, that doesn't mean it doesn't have consequences to other societies. Like. Look at look at uh, you know WhatsApp and how that's being used to spread misinformation in India. Like it's really terrifying. Like we think, oh, this is great, private conversation, and then it's kind of being used as a vector to spread things that are not true, and there's no way anybody can stop it. So you know, there's a there's a more global view here that does make what Twitter's trying to do difficult. And I, I agree. And I I would just say I would just say. It's not as though all of these problems with Twitter popped up overnight. And if we're talking yeah. about, you know, and that's sort of one technology in one space. You know, we start thinking about other technologies like um, all of the things happening within an artificial intelligence, genomic editing and CRISPR, um, autonomous transport. I mean, there's all these different areas of technology. It is incumbent upon the people, people I think, building the technology to model out risk in advance. And I've had conversations with Twitter multiple times. And the thing that I've always heard is, well, we just didn't, we were just working on the product. We're just focused on the product. We weren't thinking about making money. (laughs) If I hear one more person say they're focused on the product, you know, it's possible to focus on the product while thinking about the ramifications and implications of that product. And quite honestly, that's what the management team should be doing. Risk profiling is should be part and parcel of what every tech uh, company is working on. And, you know, that that's how we prevent, that's how we, you know, that's how we reverse engineer preferred futures to now so that Twitter isn't the, you know, the, it doesn't have the kind of problems, uh, the world changing problems that we're now <laughs> starting to see. It didn't happen overnight, you know? So, so there's something I have to say about this. Um, I watched Terminator 2 for the first time a couple of weeks ago, and I had not seen it for a long time. I, I really mean this. I, I'm being okay. very serious. Oh, right not now. for the first time ever, but just for the no, first no, time no, in a while. No, 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 just for the first time in a long time. Yeah. And there was a character in there that I was not able to appreciate as a young person, but as someone 41 in 2019, I really saw in a different way. And that was Miles Dyson. So do you all remember the scene in Terminator 2 where he's got the model of the Skynet thing in his office and he's ignoring his family and always talking about all the glorious things Skynet is going to be able to do when it's built. It's going to be a jet pilot that can fly and will never get tired. It's never going to make mistakes. You can put you in charge of weapon systems. And I saw that and I, I had not seen this movie since I was like a young 20 something really getting interested in engineering. And I, I thought about my perspective back then where I could only see the glory and the promise about all the things yeah. we were building, like yeah. connecting everyone online, yeah. you know, information online, like all this stuff, music online. And I hadn't really had the capacity in my 20s to think about, well, what's going to happen to music artists when the the only way they can make a living is to go on tour for forever? Or what's going to happen to our democracy when there are no editors deciding what stories are or are not important and most of what people are watching is cat videos? There's something fundamentally naively optimistic about engineers and I count myself 
among that where we don't think about the ways the things we build could be misused. And I think that's something we need to start having very serious conversations about in school. Because like you said, Amy, this is over and over and over and we just seem to not have the, the, the cognitive capacity to think about this stuff. Well, there's two things. I agree with both of you. They ought to. Uh, so that's the first thing is we've got to stop being naive and start kind of really thinking of the consequences. But there's also the issue. I don't know how doable that is. How, I mean, you're a futurist. Did the tools exist, Amy? Did the tools exist in 2006 yes. for Jack and Ev to say, well, this is really cool, but. Uh, yeah. So, you know, the role of, again, like, the role of a futurist is not to predict the future. It's it's to model out risk and opportunity. And as a discipline, this has been around for a hundred years. And it um, would work. You would have worked in two thousand six. You could have absolutely. foreseen this. Well, you could have foreseen, foreseen Elon exactly, Musk. Foreseen exactly how we <laughs> president. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess so. Gosh, so I I advise parts of the government. So I'm trying to figure out what I can say and what I can't. I've decided I. I'm not going to say what I was going to say, but, oh, but let me, man, let, me come say on. let me say this. Come on. Um, They're not listening. It is totally possible uh, with the right tools. And this is not difficult stuff. Um, it, it takes a willingness to confront deep uncertainty with facts, not cognitive biases. Yes, and that requires data and evidence. Yeah, so yeah. Um, there are plenty of tools. In fact, all of my, I've open sourced all of my research. So, Every, all of our research, all of our tools, everything is open source. It's all free. You can take it, use it, I hope, remix it, do whatever you want with it. Um, and, and you know, it, it is totally possible to model out what are all of the plausible ways in which things can go wrong. Now, just because, and, and that is what I do for a living. So my job is to work with, with lots of different organizations and, you know, all around the world, um, mostly on risk, sometimes on uh, growth and opportunity too, but my I'm good at risk. That's interesting. Um, so to, that's to really interesting. So people really are yeah. saying, okay, what are the risks? That's right. Now, oh, that's really interesting. But, but then once we have the risk profile set up and all of the possible ways in which things can go wrong, first of all, that's not static because there are brand new variables that get introduced all the time and things are constantly changing. Second of all, somebody's got to be willing to take action. Right. So the other piece of this is, because Brianna, I totally agree with you. Most of the engineers that I know um, are pretty happy people and they're pretty yeah. excited about changing the world in positive ways. Um, they don't love it when I come in and tell them all the ways in which all of their wonderful work could go horribly, horribly oh, wrong. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, but, 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 uh, but better that we acknowledge it so that we can say, well, if this is the case, now we build in this extra feature or now we, we erase the corpus that we're using to do this training and we start with something totally fresh that is, doesn't have all the bias, whatever it might be. Um, or maybe we slow down development a little bit, or maybe we sandbox part of what we're doing and test it under these different circumstances. <clears throat> what winds up happening is it, it takes a little longer and it may cost a little bit more money. And in this day and age, unfortunately, the investors have very little patience. And so there's this rush to productize and commercialize everything fast, um, which unfortunately butts up against a lot of risk modeling. But Anyhow, Leo, to answer your question, of course it was possible. Uh, it's You just have to have the fortitude to to do it. And then once you see what the risk profile is, to take some kind of action. Is it doesn't it, mean that the product has to die. Or Is it too late now? Yeah. 
<laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. we've we've seen the risk profile. I created some of the risk profiles. For See, the state this would be much more credible if you could come. You could bring me a paper you wrote, you a note you wrote to Ev Williams in 2007, saying, "But dude, watch out for the president." Um, well, I didn't model that part out, but I did. <laughs> Actually, uh, I though, did. in hindsight, and of course, everything's easier in hindsight. It would make sense that that's exactly because of the direct communication to that a demagogue would love Twitter. In fact, well, demagogues all over the world love Twitter and Facebook. There was plenty of evidence. There was plenty of evidence to model in the year 2014 and 2015 uh, foreign influence wreaking havoc on Twitter. Well, but I mean, even just like Hitler would have loved Twitter. Sure. Goebbels would have yeah. eaten it up. Yep. And they would have loved AI. Oh, great. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I think on a happier note, I, I would say this. One of the things I'm that Jewish. makes me. What do you, I, 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 it would but, have been, bad, but, would have been like a bad situation for me. It seems highly likely oh, that there is somewhere out there a baby, baby Hitler. And, uh, and there, all these tools well, are just waiting for her or him to come along and. We are always. I, we always assume that the next tra tragedy or the the next um, villain will look like the ones that we've already always seen. I would argue that it, we don't need another Hitler to to wreak that kind of horrific damage. Um, and in fact, I would say that we there are plenty of. No, we have Duterte. We have. I mean, we have people who are right. happy to use social media yeah. to uh, wreak havoc. I, I do think computer science is getting to a point where we've kind of tackled the low-hanging fruit. I don't think there's going to be another breakthrough that's happening by the equivalent of like Mark Zuckerberg in his dorm room. You know, one really? Of the things if you really? The, well, yeah, really? I do. Because I think if you, you think everything need, like, that's going to be invented has been invented? No, no, that's not my point at all. I think that there is um, – how can I put this? If you read the Elizabeth Holmes book, one of the things they talk about is how – it takes so long to get like next leap breakthroughs in medical science. And there's a reason why people to get their Nobel prizes, they're in their seventies because yeah. Yeah. It, 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 we've kind of taken the lower hanging fruit there. And now it takes like years of research and real understanding to hit breakthroughs. I think computer science is getting to a point where you know, there's certainly work smaller teams can do, but I think increasingly as we're moving forward, it's going to be like teams of 20, 30 people and millions of dollars to, to build things that are truly useful. And one of the reasons that makes me feel a little hope for the future is I think that as we think about what the structure of engineering teams needs to be moving forward, I think there is a spot there to have um, like ethicists on hand to start thinking about these models and how how those need to be uh, how the things we build could be misused. I think there is room for a professional standard of ethics for engineers the same way we have those for lawyers. So I think moving forward, I do think we're going to see a more of a professionalization of software development that I think could help us kind of keep some of these issues in check. I don't want to interrupt, but I have to. We're going to stop down for a okay. moment for a word from our 
uh, sponsors. I uh, will keep the thread going. You know, it feels like sometimes that we relitigate Twitter on every episode, <laughs> but uh, it, it is kind of an intractable, difficult problem. But let's move on because you said something, uh, Amy, that kind of scared me a little bit, which is Hitler would love AI. And I want to talk about that when we come back. <laughs> I always like, I'm sure that's going to be the name of the episode. Uh, I, no, no, I, I can't put Hitler in the name of the episode. Right, it's good. too horrible. Okay, but, uh, but, but, I, but your point is well taken. A demo, let's put it this way. A demagogue that's right. would love AI. Um, and, and what does that mean? And I have an example, which is going to come up in just a moment. But first... A word from this is this is the good AI, <laughs> the nice AI, <laughs> the AI that aims to please thousand eyes, which really it was it's kind of a cool story. It was founded uh, about uh, 10 years ago at UCLA with really a breakthrough research in networks and how they work. And they got funding from the National Science Foundation. They created a great company. And now. Their tools are available to you, and I think you should really call it millionize because what it is is it sensors in every part of the Internet. Thousand Eyes' unique path visualization technology extends beyond boundaries. You can see, understand, and improve the experience for all your apps, services, and websites right down to the coffee shop, from all the way from the cloud to the coffee shop. There are, you know, other... Typical IT monitoring is, is kind of passive. It operates in the silo. It can see your data center. But the world is moving to the cloud. It is a very different experience. And if you offer software or tools or cloud services, you know if you're in this business that things happen and you just go, we can never know. That's why they draw the cloud as a puffy little opaque cloud. You We, we can never know what happened there in the cloud, except now you can. It's like... You've been looking through a, a smeared, smudged window, and somebody comes along with a squeegee. Thousand Eyes is the squeegee that gives you a perfect, immediate, unmatched view of all the networks, all the dependencies that impact your user's digital experience. This, you are, as soon as you try this tool, you're going to say, How did we live without it? And we can never live without it again. You know how it is. You've got a, a cloud app or a service. It goes down or worse. It's it's worse. It's not even down. It's like weirdly slow in certain regions or just something strange is happening. And you just, you have no idea. With Thousand Eyes, you, get, you can see exactly what's happening. You don't, see people when they're moving to the cloud, one of the things, business loves the cloud. There's a lot of, but one of the things that scares people is as you gain agility with the cloud, you increase risk. And this is what really scares people. You lose control. So you, suddenly something's going on and you just can't tell what. You're scrambling to find the cause. You're losing revenue. Employee productivity is declining. Your brand image is going down. Your users are clamoring. They're at the door with pikes and torches going, we fix it. Well, what if all of a sudden you had instant visibility into your entire service delivery path from the cloud to your end user, even all the portions you don't own, you don't control, because a lot of it you don't. Thousand Eyes is cloud-based software. It's unlike anything you've seen before. Sensors all over, built to help organizations do the cloud right. A massive array of vantage points. They span the global internet, private clouds, even the Wi-Fi in your local coffee shop. It's, it, it is amazing. Top banks use it. Some of the biggest companies in the world, enterprises, SaaS companies, 
the world's largest and fastest growing brands all use Thousand Eyes software to do the cloud and do it right. All I could say is if you are in this business and you do not know what's going on with your cloud, you need to know you need Thousand Eyes. Go to thousandeyes.com slash twit. See what you've been missing. They have a great book you can give the boss. Uh, it's an ebook called Five Cloud Migration Challenges You Shouldn't Ignore. But really, if the cloud's important to you or it's going to be important to your future, you've got to find out about this. It is an amazing tool. They just blow me away. Thousandeyes.com slash twit thousandeyes.com slash twit thrive in a connected world have a thousand eyes so we've been talking about ai we've been talking about social we've been talking about how uh repressive governments might use it now comes the statistic we've talked before about china and their social credit scores we're now learning that would-be air travelers in China last year were blocked from buying tickets 17 and a half million times for social credit offenses, including unpaid taxes and fines, five and a half million times from buying train tickets. This is from this is Chinese information from the National Public Credit Information Center. In addition, 128 people were blocked from leaving China. This is social credit. We talked, Amy. On Friday, about China's uh, BRI, their mm -hmm. their foreign uh, investment and outreach, and how you think they're going to expect export the social contract, the social right? Credit. So that's yeah. So that's part of the what my new book, The Big Nine, is about. Um, it's about the nine big companies that control the future of artificial intelligence because they have the lion's share of patents. They are building the frameworks, the chipsets, the custom silicon. Um, you know, they are funding and partnering with the schools where and the universities where courses are being taught. Um, and three of those com companies are based in China. Those are Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. And while they're independent companies, they very much work under the thumb of Beijing. And there have been a couple of sort of important things that have happened in China over the past couple of years. Uh, for one, China's president is brilliant. His name is Xi Jinping. Um, and president he's a for life now president and, and they've recently changed how things work. So he's effectively president for life, which is a very easy way to consolidate power and to, to push, um, new, uh, regulations and big strategies through. So one of those big strategies is something called the BRI or the belt and road initiative. And initially, um, people thought that this was about China rebuilding its old, uh, silk trading route for the purpose of economic development and trade. However, it's important to look at um, all of these things with, with a bigger, broader lens. So China currently has 58 pilot countries that are not just getting physical infrastructure built, but also digital infrastructure, which is why there is 5G rolling out. It's just not rolling out in the U.S. It's rolling out uh, in part in China, but also among these 58 um, countries. They're, they're, laying, they're laying fiber. They are helping these countries, many of which have autocratic uh, leaders like the Philippines. Um, they're helping them start to collect data on all of their citizens using many of the same tools and AI and recognition systems and all the rest that are currently in place in lots, um, vast parts of China. And uh, this same social, the parts of the social credit score is now 
being deployed um, to other countries around the world. And you may say to yourself, so what? Like I'm an American or I'm wherever you have, I'm a Canadian, I'm German, I don't, I don't live there, what does that matter? I think the reason that this matters is again, if you model out what this looks like over many years to come, um, to me it seems entirely plausible that China is building, rebuilding the world and subdividing it in a sort of new world order with China at the helm. And it's entirely is it, plausible. Is it, do they have ambitions of world domination or is yeah. it an economic so Interest. I think it's both. Um, when we talked a little bit th about this on triangulation, some of this is that China's got China's approaching 1.4 billion people. It's a lot of people spread out over a very big swath of land. So part of this is social control, in part because while China's economy may have slowed down a little bit, it's on and up. It it, it is over. It's upwardly trending, um, and all of those people are about. China's about to see upward social mobility at a scale we've never seen before in human history. These people are going to want to buy stuff. This is um, good, right? They, they, they already that? want to buy stuff. That's good. It was a feudal economy a hundred years ago. Sure. The problem is I, that China yeah. can't build and buy, manufacture all the stuff that all of these people need. So part of this is um, renegotiating trade agreements and building new trade partners uh, so that's part of it. I will be perfectly blunt. The other part of this is that China really doesn't love our Western democratic ideals. They would much prefer to see, um, you know, the, a world reshaped where the United States and, and our allies and our Western democratic ideals are not the de facto global standard. They would much rather see their um, sort of market, market communism, uh, their, their sort of special brand of communism as the as as a predominant um ideology all, all over the world and, and if you're not worried about happen. this take a look this is the belt and road initiative map from wikipedia the red is china the orange is members of the asian infrastructure investment bank these are people who china is sending money to the black is the belt and road corridors uh that's a scary map it is. And part of part. Of, so this is like there's a lot here, but part of what's happening is technology. So we may not have Huawei phones in the U.S., but the phones are pretty awesome, actually. They're great. Um, they're, they're great. <laughs> they're being deployed. <laughs> I love my P20. In fact, Paul Farad from Windows Weekly shot all these great pictures uh, at Mobile World Congress with his Huawei P20 phone. It's an amazing phone. That's right. I, so another I do wanna, thing that I, I do want to say about this, I'm not trying to. I want to be really clear because I'm running for Congress that I'm not trying to defend China here, but I would say I have a father-in-law who is Chinese and immigrated here. I think it was 1963. And I have a lot of uh, relatives uh, through marriage. They're native from China. And I want to say those relationships give me a different perspective on everything that we're talking about here. I think you're right on, Amy, when you say uh, the structure of China is not really uh, well attuned to American-style democracy. But I also want to say, like, when I've told Chinese family members a story about Gamergate or they see me in the news, it seems insane to them. It seems completely <laughs> insane to It seems to insane them. to me and I live in America, so. But, but the idea of, like, everyone being able to harass someone online and you can't track people down and they're yeah. threatening people yeah. with death threats and that there's no way to, like, 
check that. That seems insane to someone from China. I'm not yes. saying as long as you're way, from the eastern part and you're not a Uyghur. I mean, there, there's some. Yeah, other, if you're a Muslim I mean, in China, it's a different I, matter. I, 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 I'm trying to be very clear here. So I'm not defending that. What I'm saying is it's complicated. There are, I understand. There are paradigms in China that yes. took me a while to understand yes. being a Western white woman that kind of married into that family. Uh, some of them are very, very sexist. I will never forget uh, where I was at one of my first uh, Christmas dinners with my family of in-laws and all the women were dismissed to the kitchen to go wash dishes while the men sat around and talked politics. I didn't like that very much. Yeah. But there were also paradigms there like um like the 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 head of the house, the father ultimately makes the decision, but every single child has a right that is really recognized in the culture to come forward and plead their case. So I I just want to say like what my experience has been spending 10 years in a marriage to someone with a family from China has been some of my Western assumptions yes. about them socially. I, I can see upon reflection how they were a little bit maybe condescending might be yes. the word. Vice did a really interesting story about social, uh, the Chinese social media score system. And it's exactly as you said, people are prevented from uh, like buying tickets to go on high speed trains and they definitely pay a penalty. But the other side of that that I had not seen in Western media was like elderly people paid to go around their town and like find people doing good deeds and reward them with social credit for doing that. So the the I want to be clear, I don't think this is something that we should implement in America. I think it's contrary to our, our views here. I'm just saying that particular society values the whole and the health of society as a whole yeah. more than ours does. We really praise individuality. Sure. And the last I, I want to say on this is David Brooks, I saw a video from him this week where he was talking about what ails America. And you know, this guy, he's conservative. He's not someone I agree with, but he was talking about how in America, we don't know our neighbors. Yeah. We don't, we're suspicious of our neighbors. We have half as many events at our house today as families did 30 years ago. And we're more and more distrustful of people. So I'm just saying there's, they are making a societal choice to, use technology in a way that values the the whole harmony more than ours does. And I think ours is better, but I don't want to just dismiss that as evil because I think that's okay. I, I think let, it's let, not really the whole vision. Sure. So there's been quite a bit of fear mongering when it comes to China and, and a lot of vilification. So I lived in China and I lived in Japan. And Part of the social credit score system, you know, if you talk to a lot of Chinese people who are not Uyghurs or ethnic minorities of other kinds, um, you know, they don't, a lot of people don't see this as that big of a deal. Partially this is because in Chinese culture, um, tattling on somebody else as a way to create social harmony is a longstanding tradition that goes back to feudal times. So this is a way of automating that. So for us, this seems very strange, the this, this social credit score, but for others, um, until they run, until they find that they are being restricted, um, is it's not, it's not, doesn't seem like uh, something that is all that horrible. Now, 
The point is when, when this gets exported into other countries where those traditions are not native and the purpose of this is to create control. Um, yeah. And let's again, think this through over many years um, if you have a social credit score and somebody else is determining whether or not you can move freely, whether or not your kids can go to the, some good schools or bad schools, whether or not you can apply to get a car or a home loan or any other number of things, it's likely that your travel to other countries will wind up being restricted too. From my vantage point, given the data that we have access to right now, it's entirely plausible that the countries that are aligned and using the social credit score um, with individuals having social credit scores and perhaps companies having their own version of that kind of a score becomes the new de facto way of um, making decisions. And, and those decisions are being made autonomously by, by AI systems, which means that, you know, Americans could wind up not able to travel into countries because we don't have a social credit score or maybe our companies can't do business in certain places because they don't have a social credit score. So I, I, I think, you know, we, we need to take a lot of this much more seriously than, than I think we have been. Not in a sort of way, that, not like looking at this in a fascinating way or fear mongering, but taking a very pragmatic, practical look at how, like what the implications, downstream implications of, of all of this is um, into the future. We're, we're not thinking about it that way. And we're certainly not looking at how autonomous decision-making systems built by a relative few number of people intended to optimize everybody's life intersects with other areas of life like governing and travel and health and, you know, on and on and on. I agree with every word you just said strongly. And I, I think this really backs up one of my main critiques of the the Trump era of American government, where we are withdrawing from the world. If we're not out there bringing our paradigms forward, if we're not talking to other countries about what, you know, how this needs to affect travel, how this needs to affect the things that we adopt with loans, if we're not engaging other countries, someone else will. So I very strongly agree with everything you just said. And I think it's really on us to to go out and to argue the other side of this. It's difficult. I mean, of course, yeah. cultural differences are very difficult to navigate. You, you, you mentioned cognitive bias a little while ago. I mean, cognitive bias are us. We, you know, we, for instance, I've always thought that the collectivist style of life in China had a lot to be admired and that here in the United States where we celebrate individualism, often that's pathological in this country. And, uh, and, and it can be pathological collectivism as well. So uh, I think it is important to say uh, maybe we need to understand other cultures uh, and, and maybe understand them a little bit better before we criticize them. I'm going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to highlight this because there's a big furor. Talk about outrage, moms. There's a big furor because <laughs> Google has refused to pull a, an app from Saudi Arabia that tracks women, which sounds like a bad thing, but it's complicated as everything is. And we'll talk about that when we come back. Um, boy, it's great to have two brilliant minds here. Uh, and I could just sit back and be the jello boy that I am. <laughs> Brianna Wu running for Congress in the Massachusetts 8th. Brianna Wu for Congress. Are we right on that Twitter or do you have a new Twitter? Oh, gosh. Yes, that is correct. Brianna Wu. Okay. 
It was Space Cat Gal. It We're was eliminating Space Cat that. Gal. No my Congress member should be called yeah. Space Cat Gal. That my team talked to me. They had a fit. <laughs> They're like, look, you cannot. And I came up with that when I was, my God, I, I was working at GameStop when I came up with that handle. <laughs> and so, this is the problem yes. with handles. And the chat room is full of people with handles that they thought up when they were 12 and they thought were pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, you can grow out of them. I understand. <laughs> At Brianna Wu. Much, Brianna much Wu. more grown up. <laughs> also, also, Amy Webb, her book, The Big Nine, talks about these issues in a very trenchant and uh, accessible and yet really provocative way. I think it's well worth reading how the tech titans and their thinking machines could warp humanity. Well, I want to talk more about AI, too, because that's really the meat of this uh, subject. And it is really where we're kind of going to be coming up against some um, that and CRISPR. I think uh, in the next few years are going to change everything. And I, I wonder how well we can predict what that's going to be like. But I'd like to hear Amy's suggestions for that. Meanwhile, uh, let's take a break. I think we all need to like, just kind of simmer and think about what we've just heard here. <laughs> so I'm going to play you something completely mindless. A summary of the week we just had <laughs> on Twit. Previously on Twit. Well, today uh, we are going to talk about frustration. We have some games that will leave you in a puddle on the floor crying. crying. Triangulation. Amy Webb talks about her new book, The Big Nine, how the tech titans and their thinking machines could warp humanity. A lot of decisions are being made quickly or under duress. When it comes to something like AI, which is not a single technology, but many technologies predicated on making decisions... Uh, on our behalf, I think it's it's a good idea for us to stop for a few minutes and ask about, you know, what does it all mean? This week in computer hardware. I have not felt like I, I meant something when I was out in public the way that I did when I had the first generation iPhone. And now I'm just a, a regular person and nobody cares. But what if I got the folding phone? I could be a big deal again. It's a status. You could also start wearing stripper glitter all over your face or dye your hair purple <laughs> or wearing nothing but, you know, assless chaps and probably get just as much attention. But none of those things cost $2,000, Patrick. I think you're missing the point. Twit. Depends on the glitter, depends on the chaps, buddy. Hashtag pants check. Mary Jo, did you ever pick a laptop? I have not yet. <laughs> I'm looking, looking around. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, have you narrowed it down to which Mac model you want or how? <laughs> I think she's going Linux. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> you know, a good pair of assless chaps can cost upwards of $3,000. I just want to point that out. Extra with glitter. Yeah. Our <laughs> wow. Wow. Our show today. What the glitter is? What made you go wow with that? <laughs> yeah, the glitter really. I, I was just. I was wondering what Leo was like in college. That's that's all I was. Wondering. My chat handle was in fact assless chaps. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, our show today brought and boy are they sorry. Brought to you by Stamps.com. Uh, thank you, Stamps, for being very understanding and patient. But honestly. Honestly, if you are doing mailing of any kind, maybe you have a glitter factory and you send glitter out to people. If you're sending out stuff through the U.S. mail and you're hand addressing it or typing, what do you got, a Selectric? Right, and licking and putting stamps on your mail, that's not professional. You need stamps.com. The best way to buy and print real U.S. postage the instant you need it right from your desk. 
You don't even have to go to the post office. In fact, everything you do at the post office, you could do at your desk. Stamps.com means your ink. You don't need special ink. You don't need a postage meter. You don't need anything. You just need your computer, your printer, your ink. You could print postage right on an envelope, for instance, including your logo. The return address is automatically filled in. They can even pull the sending, uh, the recipient's address from the web. If you're an Etsy seller, Amazon, eBay, it just pulls it right out of there. And then you don't even have to do anything. It'll fill out the customs forms for you if you're sending it internationally. It'll fill out the certified mail forms. You even get discounts you can't get at the post office. All of the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service, Ben Franklin's brilliant invention brought right to your desk. So, you want it? I got a great deal for you. And I got a great deal for you. You can enjoy the Stamps.com service with our special offer. You're going you're gonna to go right there to the top there. See that radio microphone? On the top there, click that, and then enter the offer code TWIT to it. And you're going to get an amazing four-week trial. Includes a big chunk of free postage, a digital scale that you can use so you always have exactly the right postage. You've got to do this because it's crazy to do anything else. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, even if you're a warehouse sending out thousands of packages a day, we send everything with stamps.com. In fact, if I need stamps, I go to Debbie. I said, print me some stamps. She gave me some stamps. I should get those. That have my picture on them. It's my picture on them. It's awesome from stamps.com. I'm no Abraham Lincoln, but it's kind of cool to have my own picture on my stamps. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 whenever you need it for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. And by the way, they'll even recommend... Uh, you know, ways to save money. I'll say, oh, you should send this media mail. Once your mail is ready, you hand it to the mail carrier or you drop it in the mailbox. And, you know, there are restrictions to the size and weight of packages you can mail in a mailbox, but not with stamps.com. No, because you're using stamps.com. Their indicia system works so well. The post office says, no, that's fine. If you use stamps.com, just put it in the mailbox. That's fine. I love it. With stamps.com, you get, I've said this before, you get discounts you can't get at the post office. You get five cents off every first class stamp. You get 40% off priority mail. This thing pays for itself and then some. You got to do it. Go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter Twit. If you're not using stamps.com, you mustn't be using the mail. That's all I can think of. Stamps.com, and enter the offer code Twit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just forget all that other stuff happened. Uh, no, I was just thinking. No, like, I know you were you thinking. you see this, Leo? So this is a picture I just had made of my husband. That's your husband. Frank. I love that. <laughs> I Frank was thinking of putting that on a stamp and that, sending you it can. out to people. I <laughs> you know. Can. That would be awesome. So it's a separate process. <laughs> they have a thing where you can get stamps printed up uh, with pictures or whatever you want. And they're, they're, they're self-adhesing stamps. And you get a sheet or two or whatever you want of them. And then you run it through the printer and the stamps.com puts this postage on it. <laughs> it's so cool. Oh, it'll print directly on the envelope? Or on the envelope. You oh. guys, you should do more commercials with me. You're great. You I mean, Leo, office. it'll print right on the envelope? Yes, Amy, it will print right on the envelope. No, I listen, <laughs> I'll tell you something. I I'll tell you, I bought stamps I'll, I have bought stamps off of stamps.com and yeah. the reason was because I couldn't easily buy stamps from the USPS website. Yes. It was impossible. Right. But you it know why? Was, the Postal Service loves Stamps.com. They have, Of course, you can't do this without the cooperation of the Postal Service. They love Stamps.com. They say, please, everybody just use Stamps. The post office website is like oh, no, it's ridiculous. We're getting and mad cuts on that. The post office never has Stamps, literally. They're always out. 
or there's somebody who doesn't have stamps. Last time I was in the post office, I love the post office. I have a I have a soft spot for the U.S. Postal Service, and I realized why because as a kid, all the good stuff that ever happened to me came through the mail. You know, my Captain Crutch decoder ring, my Mister Potato Head doll that I ordered from the. It all came through. See, I wasn't a grown up, so I didn't get bills. I didn't get any of the negative stuff. I only got the good stuff. If mail came from me when I was a kid, it was good. So I loved the postman. Yeah, that's right? that's not our situation. I get everybody else's mail. Everybody else gets our mail. <laughs> and I know that because I subscribe to the USPS. Um, they'll scan all. Oh, yeah, like I love that. Now. I do that. Yeah, well, they'll scan yeah. it and tell you what's coming today. I do that. And like yeah. most days of the week, half of that stuff is missing and we get other people's stuff. Oh, you and- got to get a better mail carrier. I know my mail carrier. We're personal friends. She'll come out. She'll say stuff. She'll say, oh, you're getting that tea again. I said, yeah, you want some? Oh, yeah, I'll take some. It's great. Will we she deliver it. to the East Coast? I wish. <laughs> no, she's great. Yeah, I get that postal thing where they send the, uh, it's coming, you know, it's coming. I love that. Yeah. So this is controversial, and I, but, but, but I think if you dig deeper, and I want to thank Hacker News, which is a great service, a new service provided by Y Combinator, because I, like everybody else, read the Business Insider column or article. If you just, even if you just read the headline, it's incendiary. Break, bring out the uh, outrage moms. Google, siding with Saudi Arabia, refuses to remove widely criticized government app, which, get this, lets men track women and control their travel. Google has rejected calls to remove a Saudi government app. Uh, they called, uh, they, Jackie Spear called him, uh, your, your future colleague, Brianna, from the uh, House of Representatives. And, and she said, they said, oh, the app doesn't violate our terms of service. Now, you just read this news, you're going to say, oh. But see, I think there's another example of maybe some cultural misunderstanding and, 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 and on misunderstanding of what this app really does. So it is a governmental app that provides official services, among them a digitized version of the yellow sheet. So this is the law in Saudi Arabia. I mean, this is really the problem is it's the law in Saudi Arabia. For a woman to leave the country... Her legal guardian, her husband, if not her family, has to fill out a form. Not her. She can't do it. So she has to say, well, husband, I'd like to leave the country. Could you sign this? And, uh, and by the way, to prevent forgery, the legal guardian, her husband, has to show up at the office with the form. So the point being made by a lot of women in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere is, no, this app is great. Because, first of all, you don't have to go to the office. It, it, it facilitates getting this permission, which we have to get anyway. The app doesn't change the rule. Uh, I'll quote a, a tweet uh, posted uh, by Mona uh, El-Tahawi, who had a female relative in Saudi, a fa- Saudi feminist, send this. Mona, I hope you're having a great day. Just wanted to bring your attention aside. Most feminist activists are forgetting right now. Absher, that's the name of the app, is a symptom of a problem, not the problem itself. In fact... If the public pressure currently circulating on social media against Google and Apple continues, this could be troubling to Saudi women. The app is an abomination, of course, but it has helped women rather than the opposite. Those who want to flee can do so with app access, but never could before with actual paperwork in the previous bureaucratic system. Guardians would use it as an excuse because it's it's so hard. Uh, They would use it as an excuse my father used to have to physically file paperwork in order for us to travel. So this is actually, in, in a very perverse way, an enabling technology for Saudi women. 
And this, to me, is kind of similar to this problem of understanding what the Chinese are doing. Um, I'm going to give Google a pass on this one. What do you guys think? I think based on the information you've just given, it, it, it seems like that to me as well. Um, there are a lot of people just, also on Hacker News who say it's facilitating an immoral action, which it is. I mean, it's it's facilitating um, a Saudi government. I think um, I think it speaks to the need for women to get involved with the political process, and I would encourage people in that country to change that law because it sounds deeply sexist yes. to me. So Some, Somebody in the uh, Hacker News uh, comments said, what if uh, you know Saudi Arabia only freed their African slaves in 1962? What if a new king re-enslaved them? I guess Google would be fine with hosting slave auction apps. <laughs> Google also... You know, whether it's Google or Facebook, which is in trouble yet again in the EU as of yesterday, um, or, you know, you name it, the, the platforms have to either make a, make a decision that they are nothing more than an intermediary between people and businesses, and that's it, um, which would mean that their app stores and all of the content is um, not aggregated or I mean it's it's sort of uh, it, it, there's no weight to how any of it's aggregated there's no recommended lists there's nothing like that right um, or they have to say you know what we're a platform and we are making decisions and then when they make those decisions I think they have to be extremely transparent and consistent in how those decisions are being made and the problem is that at the moment they are not doing that and to do you know and so this is a and hard this is, one this is, because this, this is, is if they be, didn't make Absure, that wouldn't change the law, wouldn't change the requirements. It just make it more onerous. In fact, yeah. So get out. So my point is, uh, get out ahead of it. And you know, it, the we the the big tech companies are eroding our trust as yes. you know every day. Yes. And uh, it's going to be hard to regain it. Um, however we can't divorce ourselves from the technology companies either. So this is creating an acrimonious relationship that I can guarantee you ends in regulation. Yeah, we regulation, are Google, right? I mean... That's right. And regulation yeah. is not good at all because <laughs> there's not going to be a singular regulation all around the world. There's going to be lots of different types of regulations and ultimately regulation is going to stifle innovation. So guardrails are good. Regulation is bad, but the only way to avoid that situation is to be very upfront before people get upset, before it's discovered that there's a microphone in your in your thermostat that nobody knew was there, right? And before uh, you put an app in the app store that you know is probably going to be controversial, um, be transparent in how and why those decisions are being made. But that sort of thing takes courageous leadership, which we need to start seeing demonstrated now. All right, I got a minefield for Brianna Wu, and if you want to, if <laughs> you want, if you want to recuse yourself up. on this one, do. But I think a <laughs> a brave and savvy political leader like you will take this on. Let's do it. Uh, and uh, this is to me, this is challenging. So uh, you know the Jedi contract, which is an artificial intelligence uh, face recognition contract that Google was. It's a ten billion dollar contract. Google was going to. A, you know, a try to get in the running for, and thanks to a petition of thousands of Google employees, decided, eh, maybe we better stay away from that. Meanwhile, Jeff Bezos said, "Well, what the hell's wrong with United States technology companies helping the legally um, 
uh, authorized military forces do their job to defend us. We've got a military. What's wrong with us creating products for the military? And took the contract or said, I don't remember if they got it or they said they'd take it. I think they got it. $10 billion contract. Microsoft, same issue. Microsoft has faced a petition by a smaller number of uh, employees, 50 employees, uh, saying, we don't want you to take this $479 million contract to supply HoloLens to the military. Satya Nadella kind of did the, the Jeff Bezos thing, saying Microsoft, this, you know, Microsoft would not withhold technology from democratic governments. We made a principal decision that we're not going to withhold technologies from institutions that we have elected in democracies to protect the freedoms we enjoy. Uh, I have to say, it's very interesting in this country that, you know, it used to be, uh, you know, World War II, everybody pitched in. Rosie the Riveter built uh, fighter planes. It used to be patriotic. Now it's, it's kind of, in some quarters, quite the opposite. Is it because it's AI, because it's such double-edged technology? Is it because it's augmented reality? Well, I think if, uh, you know, Amy, you were talking about people at these tech companies speaking up, having more of a voice, doing the right thing. I personally think that's a little bit of an optimistic vision of the future, but one component of that would certainly be people at these companies having conversations internally about what they're comfortable uh, building. And I think those are great conversations to have. Uh, I have friends on the Microsoft Azure team that uh, had conversations about their databases being used by uh, you know, ICE. So I, I think that's really good. Um, for me personally, I am running for United States Congress. Uh, I believe in the United States. I want the United States to be safe and secure. Uh, I'm not like an anti-military pacifist. My father served in the Navy. My grandfather served in World War II. So uh, personally, I think when it comes to AI technology, we need to realize that uh, you know, China and other countries are employing this to basically use in information warfare and cyber warfare. So I think uh, we need to reach out to companies like Google, see if there's work we can do together that everybody can feel good about. And if there's not, I think there's a, a place for the DOD to fund that research. But uh, the bottom line is other companies countries are going to research these things. So, um, you know, it's like if you've got the nation next door that's inventing, you know, bows and arrows, like we've got to be looking into those things as well. Yeah, I understand why engineers would say, well, we want to say in what we develop and some pacifists might say, well, we don't want to develop military technology. But ultimately, the company that you're working for is going to make that decision. And, and Nadella says, oh, we'll have conversations with all our employees. We want to hear them. But at this point, we think it's right. Now, Amy Webb, I guess I'm going to guess that you're no stranger to the halls of the Pentagon. No, I have spent time in the Pentagon. Yeah. Um, so you've made that decision yeah. personally. Sure. Uh, listen, I, I um, the future of the future of our future wars are going to be fought in code, not combat. They're not going to look yep. anything like we've seen before. And the reality is that um, our government uh, outside of the military, but I would argue also inside of the military for many years, wasn't developing and funding our readiness. And um, as a result of that, there are other countries around the world that have become a pacing threat. So uh, 
we need to consider that as well as the role that large technology companies have have always played in shoring up our national defense and security. I mean, that's, we've always had that relationship. I think what's different now, again, is um, that that society has changed and, and employees of companies feel um, that they are uh, that that their employers should be responsible and tell them and be very transparent about all of the projects that they're working on and why. Um, it was not like that in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, so that has changed. And and um, there's a, there's a pretty big difference between uh, systems that don't require boots on the ground to blow things up and autonomous systems that um, and vehicles and everything else that are doing that. Uh, in communities where that there are likely to be other kinds of casualties. But what I would say is, you know, that um, most of us are protected every day from uh, all of the evils that, that happen outside of our homes and offices. You know, we don't have to deal with, we don't have to really, I mean, even when things are really bad, like we, we don't have to think about shoring up our nation's security. Somebody's got to do that. That's, you know, and not just in our country, in every country. So, um, this, this, this is challenging. This is really difficult stuff going forward. And, uh, you know, it would be terrific if, um, if we could be in a position where there was more collaboration between Silicon Valley, uh, and Washington DC in a way that wasn't purely transactional because right now it is a transactional relationship mm, and oftentimes antagonistic. Yeah. Yeah. So, if, yeah. so it would be great mm. if the engineers, got to go to the Pentagon and the people in the Pentagon spent significant time out in Silicon Valley. And there was more of a, a revolving door between the two so that um, it wasn't, it, we, we weren't just talking about Bezos and Amazon negotiating a whatever, how many billion dollar deal to, to build, to, to use facial recognition technology in a way that makes us all feel bad. You know, um, we yeah. just, we, we, we're not in that situation culturally right now, and it's going to take us a while to steer the ship um, in a slightly different direction. There are people that are working on this, but there, but it would be great if there was more interplay between the Valley and NDC. Amy, can I add something on to what you just said uh, about future wars being fought in code? I think that is so dead on. And if you're someone like me that thinks of violence and war as a, a last resort... I would really encourage you to go read a fascinating book by uh, uh, Kim Zetter. It's called uh, Countdown to Zero Day. It's about the development of Stuxnet source. And this is one of the most fascinating cyber weapons that has ever been developed. So we, we have two choices here. Like Iran is developing nuclear weapons and we can either go in and like target them with missiles or spend, send in special forces or, you know, like have a war. That's option A. What they did was option B. It's absolutely fascinating what this cyber weapon did. It was propagated to different versions of, uh, I forget which operating system, I think it was Windows. It was this one um, version of this. And it ended up being targeted towards their centrifuges. Yeah, the SCADA, and, the SCADA controllers in the centrifuges. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it got there and started looping the video while controlling the motors inside the centrifuges to make them malfunction mm -hmm. and to slowly run until they just ended up yeah. like basically breaking down. And what I appreciate about this is it was a solution to a problem where no one was 
hurt, like no bullets were fired. And I think this has a lot of things we've got to think about defensively because right now America's on the defense. But like offensively, I, I think you would have to be a really extreme kind of pacifist to not think we need um, that to feel suspicious about employing, say, facial recognition at our borders to see if like members of ISIS are trying to get into the United States. Like there are there are, there are solutions here that save lives. And mm-hmm. I think we should be clear eyed about the abuses that are possible. And I think that's why technologists need to be in those decisions. But I think there's a way to really get around some of the horrors of war by engaging in this front. Well, but even Stuxnet isn't all positive. By the way, does Zetter uh, ever answer the question who developed it? Was it the Israelis? Was it the U.S.? Was it a a joint I've heard Israelis, but yeah. 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 So it's not a complete positive because A, Stuxnet escaped. Yeah, (laughs) fair enough. Weaponized against all of us. And there's some argument that even though it might have initially slowed down the Iranians, all they did was secure their uh, systems better and step up their nuclear development program. So maybe that's it, a fair point. Maybe that's it worked. Point. Maybe it didn't work. It, <laughs> it's you know what? Here's the deal. In everything we've just talked about, it's complicated. It's mm-hmm. really, really complicated. And a, I want to say, Brianna, I think it's a temptation for politicians to avoid these uh, very difficult moral quandaries because there isn't a black and white right answer. And and I think also I want to pat ourselves on the back because I think generally in news, people go for the hot take instead of the nuanced, difficult conversations because there's no, there's no obvious answer. It's difficult. And we have to, it's thorny and we have to really deal with it. And I want to admire, I admire you, Brianna, for being willing to say that, to, to talk about these complicated situations without the obvious hot take that is the best way to earn votes, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, I, you know, if I want to commend our audience because you have the patience for this, this is uh, be a lot easier. And certainly a lot of news organizations just go for that hot take. Yeah. Uh, there's certainly a better way to get uh, an audience, but these, I think we need to talk about this. Uh, and it's it's challenging. It really is. We uh, need to have adult conversations and yeah. all of these things. And we need to be willing to do research. We need to be willing to have our minds changed. On it things. seems to be and the think, last thing that political, at least political conversation is in this country. Or, uh, there have been, happen. I mean, I will say that within DOD, there have been some changes. There's been more funding. There's um, There are some joint operations now on, on AI. Um, you know, so again, I... I I would urge us to consider that um, keep, keeping the world keep, keeping the world peaceful requires a lot of military might. That's um, and readiness. Yes. So yeah. I mean, yes. it's just that that is the and my academic background is in game theory, so or partially in game theory. So I mean, this is not and it's not us. It's not our generation. So you're saying that that the only way to win is not to play. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um. I would say one way to win is to demonstrate readiness and then hopefully not yeah. ever have to engage. Yeah. Yep. Well, since, uh, you know, I guess World War II, we, ha- you know, since the first and only use of atomic weapons, we've had skirmishes, we've had small wars, but we haven't had a world war. And I think a l- there's a number of reasons. My two favorite reasons are global trade. 
the more dependent we are on each other economically, the less likely we are to burn each other down. And the and look what's happening. Yeah, well, with there's trade. another issue, but that's uh, and the threat of a devastating war. And uh, yeah. when when war, the cost of war outweighs the benefits of war, people aren't going to wage it. And uh, so peace through strength is is absolutely part of that. Uh, and I'm a honestly, if I had to choose, I'd be a pacifist. But I realize that that's probably not uh, a viable strategy for nation states. Could I make a quick recommendation to yes. everybody? Um, so if you're into what we're talking about, we got a lot of homework from heavy. this show, by the way, I already got uh, a six, <laughs> six book list here's here. Like, <clears throat> here, here. So I'll go the, the less reading route. Um, Dr. Strangelove still holds, holds up awesome. movie of all time. Awesome. I watch it, uh, every couple months. I always find something new yep. and you should rewatch that. And I'll tell you something. War games, uh, all these years <sighs> later is both nostalgic and totally spot on. And, uh, so my callback was not inappropriate. Yeah, yeah, totally. So that's what made me think of it. <laughs> Jonathan. You know what? People got it, which was kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> I thought yeah. maybe that's too obscure, but no, no, we're talking to geeks here. All right. Uh, coming up, our hot take outrage session. <laughs> All it takes is one word for me, Facebook. And they're in oh. it again, ladies and gentlemen. They are in it again. But first a word from our sponsor, and I love this sponsor, Sophos Cybersecurity. We use Sophos. That is our protection at Twit from the outside world. We use Sophos hardware and Sophos software to protect ourselves from all the threats that can bring any business to its knees. Sophos is really sophisticated. Uh, they are now using uh, artificial intelligence. They're using deep learning. Here's the problem. Hackers can come up with threats faster than the uh, security companies can come up with defenses. Well, at least it used to be that way. Now, thanks to deep learning, which uses neural networks to interpret data and respond to threats it doesn't even know about, you're now safer. It works instantly. And this is exactly the kind of protection you need. No wonder Sophos recently ranked number one. SE Labs did an independent security test, the best protection ratings across the board for both large enterprises and small businesses. And now they've, I think they've done something kind of interesting. They've made, they've taken this advanced technology that businesses use and made a premium version for the home, for your Mac and for your PC. It's called Sophos Home. Real-time protection from the latest ransomware attacks, malicious software, hacking attempts. It can, it can detect hacking attempts because it knows what they look like, right? It's incredibly easy to use whether you're simply securing your own laptop or managing the security of multiple devices in your own home or around the world because... It is a cloud-based system with an online console. That means you can sign up for one account and protect all the Macs and PCs in your home and even in your relatives' homes. You can keep friends and family secure even if they're thousands of miles away. You can remotely manage security, clean up threats, keep systems safe. I think a lot of us are the IT department for our family members, and this is a great tool. You may know Sophos' tagline is security made simple. The whole thing very easy. You log in from your browser and you secure your systems today and you know everything that's going on. I really like this method of, of kind of keeping track of what's going on. So bottom line, home user or enterprise, Sophos has you covered. Some of the largest businesses in the world use Sophos to stay protected from those ransomware attacks. Third-party reviewers consistently rank Sophos among the best cybersecurity providers and I love that synchronized security that can manage all your products from a single cloud-based console. You're going to love it, too. And it's free. You can try it for free. It's not free forever, but it's free to try. And 
they always have offered, and we've mentioned this many times, a really good free uh, security scan that you can run at Sophos, S-O-P-H-O-S, Sophos.com. That's it, just Sophos.com. We thank them so much for their support of Twit. Facebook. Oh, don't you love Facebook? And it, it, let me just ask, before I delve into this, do we even need Facebook? <laughs> A lot of businesses do. Their their data are tied up in their apps and oh, yeah. OAuth and sign-ons and oh yeah, you know. like that uh, Flow app that monitors your menstrual cycles. Yeah, the one that <laughs> yeah, has I Facebook code. That. The one that has Facebook code that every time you use it, whether you're a Facebook user or not, it sends it off to Facebook. <laughs> that app. Yeah, they need it. Uh, my my campaign team, part of hiring uh, hardened professionals this time around for 2020, is you're, you're talking to people that are very pragmatic and have won elections. And they sat down with me this cycle and they're like, Brie, we know you hate Facebook. We know you find it <laughs> ethically objectionable. But the cold, hard fact of you it is we ran it. the numbers yeah, yeah, yeah. and 20% of the people in the district that you need to vote for you are on Twitter and 83% of them <sighs> are on Facebook. Yeah. That's the so real, the, that's the people's social network, not yeah. Twitter. It, that's it's right. sad that's right. and it makes me want to throw up because I think they are <laughs> the worst company in tech today. Like bad for democracy, bad for the tech industry, bad for virtual reality. Reality, but uh, I think you don't have a choice. This is a byproduct of a monopoly. So Facebook is one of the G mafia in my book uh, and in life. Um, and and so the center part of the book, I did, I go into optimistic, pragmatic, and scenarios for the future. And I guess I will spoil this a little bit, but um, Facebook doesn't exist in the future in two of those sets of scenarios. Yeah. Um, What's going to take them down? Um, I don't think it's a matter of what takes them down as much as how does the business model survive once there are uh, two things happening. One, again, like I think if we are, if regulation becomes unavoidable, that is a catastrophic blow to Facebook. Right. And two, Zuckerberg said um, as much to Congress. He said, this is our right. business model. We can't thing, exist without this. The second thing is the what I like to call the Diet Coke test. So have you ever noticed that you'll notice if you start looking around um, that people who are drinking Diet Coke tend to be of a certain age uh, and younger people. And by that, I'm like very um, older millennials, young Gen X and above drink Diet Cokes. Kids don't. Because um, they have they, good taste. Well, because they didn't grow up with it because it wasn't oh. a cultural touch point. And, oh. and there was a and, and people are they were the so Pepsi generation. Is that why? No, they're the bottled water generation and the, oh, juice, like the energy drink generation. Oh, Right. So, so anyhow, um, so Facebook is, you know, has has its own Diet Coke test coming up. Um, there's an entire generation of people who who not only yes. didn't grow up You're with right. Facebook as their primary social network, but have been told over and over again that Facebook is evil. So I think Facebook, you know, uh, it's, I, I would put the odds against Facebook surviving in the long term, but it exists for right now. This explains actually something because, and this is one of the stories, I won't go into all those things that Facebook did wrong this week. Uh, there's not enough time. I want to talk about Elon Musk. But uh, remember when we were talking about that uh, research program that Facebook had put on Apple after Apple banned the Onavo uh, program because it was spying on users. And so Facebook took the Onavo code, put it in a program with a different name and then put it out. And then Apple said, no, no, you can't do that. Facebook said, no, 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 less than 5% of the people who, uh, by the way, chose to participate in this market research program were teens. Isn't um, that illegal? 
Well, they got, oh, and we had to, and we got written permission from their parents, they said. Well, it turns out <laughs> TechCrunch has obtained Facebook's unpublished February 21st response to questions about the research program to Mark Warner, Senator Mark Warner. In the letter to Mark Warner, they admitted, well, it wasn't 5%, it was 18%. <laughs> and of course, as you might imagine, the real reason that Onavo existed and uh, the Facebook research app existed is because they were trying for the life of them to figure out what the hell kids are doing what are they doing we got a fun week what program should we buy next 18 percent. so they lied uh fine <laughs> but that's become the, the, there's a, it's a pathology now it's a, that's in, the problem in the Lie it's, and then um, apologize, it, then and lie then again. Apologize later, and there's never any consequences. Nope. There's, there's, yep. ne I mean, and and a fine, uh, even if a fine gets levied, maybe that irritates investors for five seconds, and then we all go back to business as usual. Yep. Uh, okay, uh, enough Facebook. Because <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't have anything we, new to say. On no, Facebook. we've said they're it. terrible. They're they need to face. Fun. They're terrible. They need to face consequences. I love Jeremy Birch, yep. who we love. He's uh, on the Unicode committee, the founder of Emoji Emojipedia. Great tweet. For years, Facebook claimed that adding a phone number was for two-factor authentication. Right? You 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 secured your Facebook account. You had to give them a phone number so they could text you. Right? Well, now now it can be searched. And there's no way to disable it. There's no way. The original Facebook number prompt never mentioned that it would be used for anything but two-factor. It does now. They added that months after, months afterwards, because they got caught. And and you know they're going ahead. So you're when and we knew this because they're because of excellent research. Uh, I think it was from ProPublica, but I can't remember uh, where uh, they bought ads based on people's phone numbers. People who had never. <sighs> Given their phone number to Facebook, except for two factor, and just it's I can I could go on, but I won't. Uh, I did because we wanted to talk about Elon. I promised uh, that we would talk about uh, Elon, uh, Brianna Wu. Um, yes, Elon in the in the in the something again. He's 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 promising Speaking of not using Twitter. Like he's he he's the poster it. boy. I know. Yup. Twenty. He one tweet. By the way, a two-word tweet wasn't even a, a 280 character no, tweet. No, I think it, I think it, the the other. I'm talking. Are you talking about the SEC violation? Yeah, twenty million dollars for saying yeah. funding acquired. Yep. No, the, 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 I mean the, he yeah. got in trouble this time. For, now he's in trouble again. Right. Right. SEC has asked a judge to hold Elon Musk in contempt because after he got fined for twenty million dollars, he agreed. He made a deal that he would not. He would he would get approval from the SEC before he made any material tweets about Tesla's business. He just tweeted that Tesla would make five hundred thousand vehicles this year, and then four hours later, saying, "I mean, the company's annualized production rate at the end of twenty nineteen could be around five hundred thousand vehicles." Uh, the SEC went to the court saying Musk did not seek or receive pre approval prior to publishing this tweet, which was inaccurate and disseminated to over twenty four million people. Musk has until March 11th to explain to the court why he should not be held in contempt. So I have a lot to say. And about the stock's this. down 3%. Leo, Leo, you and I have both worked as journalists. And I, I, I think, I, I think could you use the right? present tense for me? Because honestly, I feel like I'm still a journalist. 
Okay, right, right. But okay. I mean, I mean, like hard, hard, like covering. Court I was cases, never. Right? I never went yeah. to courtrooms. I never went to city hall meetings. I was never a reporter. I was okay. A so, so I've I've sat there and covered rape cases, murder cases, really, really serious things, yeah. and and one of the things that experience taught me is you've got to treat judges with an immense amount of respect and take that process unbelievably seriously. They're cranky. And what what really bothers me about Elon is he had the SEC thing before, he got his deal, and then he goes on CBS and is just blasting everyone involved in the most conceited interview I've ever seen. And then, you know, he comes back and he does this. And I just, I, I have to say, it's like, it's so unbelievably arrogant. I cannot process it. I understand there's an argument that, well, if you look at what he says, it could be seen as an honest mistake. And, you know, let's give him the benefit yeah, but he of the dug doubt. The, he got, dug it deeper, of course. He did. Afterwards. He did. You know, and he was dissing the SEC. He said something's right. broken with the SEC. So, he, he, you know, it reminds me of Roger Stone. And... Uh, and I, who was again in trouble with the court after being told stop it, he used There's a great documentary yeah. with him on. Isn't uh, it? Get me Roger yeah, Stone. Ro- yeah, on it. Netflix. Love yeah. it. Uh, he he used Instagram, not Twitter. But I would I would I would submit that there are just some people who should really not be using social media, and I'm one of them. Uh, I don't because uh, I don't. I'm afraid of you know the backlash. I yeah. mean. I don't know. What are you what are you going to do? Well, I I would posit something maybe totally totally different, which is I don't I don't know Elon at all. Um nor do I. I, I wonder, drive a Tesla and I am I will say grateful to Elon for what he has done. Very yeah. grateful. I also drive a Tesla and I'm looking forward to the summon feature which I guess is going to get rolled out sometime soon so that my car can come and uh, pick me up in the parking lot. Um but here's what I would say. We don't know him, but I have to think that as you ascend um, throughout the various social strata and economic strata, I think the closer that you get to the top, the, the more lonely it is and the harder it is to get probably affirmation that, that feels genuine in any way. And I just wonder if he tweets stuff out like this because he needs somebody to sort of like say, you're doing a great job. And he, he doesn't, I, I don't know. Um, maybe it, maybe he's some, something totally different, but maybe he's just very lonely and is, needs somebody to tell him he's doing a good job. The Great Gatsby, yeah. F. Scott yeah, Fitzgerald. Let me tell you about the very rich. They are different from you and me. They possess and enjoy early, and it does something to them. Makes them soft where we are hard and cynical we are, where we are trustful in a way that unless you were born rich, it is very difficult to understand. They think deep in their hearts that they are better than we are because we had to discover the compensations and refuges of life for ourselves. Even when they enter deep into our world or sink below us, they still think they are better than we are. They are different. He wrote that 90 years ago. <laughs> I think it's still true. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I I, I, I want to say, like, uh, you're reading this book about Palmer Lucky recently. Um, you know, he is someone who got a lot of blowback and ultimately was pressured and forced to leave Facebook because of 
some memes he allegedly funded that were um, kind of very anti-Hillary and kind of allegedly terrible. Something I thought that was very interesting about this book was how much it humanized him. And I walked away from this book like really feeling like there was never a story told about this kind of brilliant engineer that was 19 years old and trying to revive like this dead technology and trying to figure out positional tracking when no one else could. It just gave me a very different perspective on that. And Amy, just bouncing off what you were saying, I have no doubt there is a a flawed and very likable person there in Elon. But at the same time, like this isn't you know, like the SEC is not a show. Like we have people's lives savings tied yeah. up in these companies. And like after Theranos, like if you listen to the the podcast, The Dropout, you get to listen to investors that put their life savings hurt. in this company yeah. and were destroyed over it. Yeah. So I would say it's not personal in feeling like he needs to be held to standards. This is just the law. And if he's not going to take it seriously, I think he should meet his consequences in front of a judge and with due process. I'm just saying he should get off Twitter. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) I second that. (laughs) TikTok fined $5.7 million. This is the number one app, especially with young people. If Facebook wanted another app, this would be the one to buy, except it's already been bought by ByteDance, a giant in China. TikTok, which combined musically with TikTok and is the biggest social media network for the under 20s, has been apparently collecting information and illegally collecting information from children under 13. FTC uh, sued and a 15, I'm sorry, a $5.7 million fine. Um, actually, this goes back to the musically uh, days. So TikTok kind of got in the heat by buying them. Um, okay, I'm going to end with on a, one last story that's, a, uh, I think, an up, upbeat story to cheer you all up. Uh, Santiago Lopez from Argentina. Uh, he w- was a young kid, didn't have a lot of money, was inspired by the movie Hackers, taught himself how to hack watching, and I love this, free online tutorials and reading popular blogs. At the age of 16, he earned his first bug bounty, $50. Continued to hack after school. He is now 19 years old, hacks full-time. He's the first teenage hacker to earn $1 million in bug bounties. He's reported more than 1,600 security flaws to organizations, Twitter and Verizon, among others, private enterprise as well as government entities, I love this self-taught hacker from uh, Buenos Aires, from Argentina, Santiago Lopez. And he I learned online. I think that's online. a really great story that bug bounties work as yeah. far as uh, being not the only component of cybersecurity, but certainly a component. And I think for me, one of the, the plans I would have for United States and cyber warfare is I think we should radically expand our bug bounty system. I would love to have people penetration testing like schools, hospitals, other you know, non-military infrastructure and figuring out how to make it more secure. And like I think about the number of women I know personally who have amazing engineering skills and have left the field because they feel like the culture isn't worth it. How awesome that would be if they could 
like do this kind of work and pursue these bounties in making our schools and hospitals safer. I think it's a great idea. Love it. Man, I really like having you guys on. Thank you so much for being here. Amy Webb's new book is The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity. You're doing a book tour right now. Are you going to be anywhere we should look for? Uh, so if you go to amyweb.io, the book tour schedule is there. I'm in, uh, well, I'm at South by this coming weekend. Oh, that's so come right. to my of session. Yeah. Um, doing book signing on Saturday at 1230. Uh, I'm going to be in, uh, I'm, I'll be at Politics and Prose. If you're in Seattle, I'm doing a town hall debate. I'm doing, uh, I'll be in Chicago. I'll be in New York. I'll be in San Francisco, Boston, Minneapolis, Baltimore. That Holy list cow. that you're showing is actually not even complete. Um, so I'll be all over the place and I, um, you know, I would love to say hi in person. I'm actually really impressed because I thought book tours were a thing of the past. Your publisher must love you. <laughs> um, I, well, I will say this, um, the people who got early copies of the book, uh, who read it, uh, it really scared the hell out of them, which, <laughs> you know, um, it, it is not, it is not a feel, it's a fast read. It is not a feel good book. Um, the, the last part of it is solutions and tactical recommendations for everybody, for good. you, for me, for yes. government, for universities. So, but, but it, it scared the hell out of them. Um, so I think it's gotten some buzz and I just found out yesterday that it made two lists. So ironically on Amazon, um, it, it's Amazon, not even out yet, right? It's not out for a couple of days. No, it doesn't come out until Tuesday. Amazon named it the best, uh, it got listed for both best, um, history book and best nonfiction wow. book for the month. Congratulations. And so, it's not even um, out. Yeah. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty jazzed. And I, nice. I wrote this book because I, we need to take action and we need to change the developmental track of AI. And I think we all have a, a part in doing that. So I, I really hope people will read it and take it seriously. I think though, Amy, I just bought your book on Audible, and nice. I will be, I will read that, and I would love to, uh, if I'm fortunate enough to win my election, talk about how to get here. Absolutely, and I, you don't have to listen to my voice. That's the best part of the Audible <laughs> version of the book. It's not me. There's a person who has a pleasant voice who you will enjoy listening to. I enjoy listening to you, Amy, but I do have a <laughs> marketing idea. I think you need slap bracelets to say the Big Nine. <laughs> And then you yep. could just hand those out at all your signings. Yeah, with no weird pixel line no, breaking up. Nothing the, uh, in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Brianna Wu. Brianna Wu for Congress, the Massachusetts Eighth. We're going to get her in this time. Uh, go to uh, you know follow her at Brianna Wu. Uh, the website is what Brianna Wu. It's Brianna Wu for Congress. For Congress. And if okay. I can tell you about something, Leo, yes. um, we're. We're about to have a really, I'm seeing here it's the old like temporary website. We're having a really big release this week. Uh, it's a completely redone site. But one of the things that it was really hard for me to do as a candidate is uh, we have a, a bunch of videos telling people about my life. Oh, um, I, awesome. I can tell people about Gamergate. But one of the things that is really hard for me to talk about as someone running for public office is, you know, I was adopted, uh, which meant my first family just threw me away when I was born. And then when I came out to my parents in my 20s, uh, they disowned me instantly. Oh. And I lost my second family as well. And oh. I talk a lot about how that struggle to find myself and to come back really kind of defined my politics and my commitment to my neighbors and the people around me. So that is coming out this week. Uh, if Twit listeners want to see that or share that, I would personally appreciate it. 
Anna. I will, and Brianna, I just donated a hundred bucks because I want you to win. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you very so much. So I just your your the shopping cart system on your website works, and uh, <laughs> if I was in your state, I would vote for yeah. you. But if you can't vote, that. contribute. Uh, I did that last time. I'll do it again. And I'm really, in, I have to say, I'm really enjoying contributing to all the female candidates for 2020. I think that's my no men, no <laughs> men. I like you, Joe Biden. I'm sorry, no men, no men allowed. Nah. Uh, thank you, Brianna. Brianna, and don't forget, Brianna hosts a fabulous podcast with Simone de Rochefort and our friend Christina Warren. That's called uh, Rocket because it's yes. a rocket to the moon. <laughs> and uh, you must listen to that on Relay FM. Thank you, everybody, for being here. What a fun show this was! I appreciate it. Uh, we do Twit every Sunday afternoon, three p.m. Pacific, six p.m. Eastern time. That's twenty three hundred UTC. Uh, just a program note. Uh, I realize I'm sitting around for an hour waiting for the show to start, so we might try to start it earlier from now on. What are we thinking, Carson? Maybe uh, 2.15 Pacific, 5.15 Eastern? 2.15 sounds about right. Yeah. yeah, it may be a little later because I'm getting off the radio show at 2 and we'll come over. and It's a long commute across the hall, but I, I'll try to make it in 15 minutes. So if you want to uh, watch the show live, start thinking about doing it at 2.15 Pacific, 5.15 uh, Eastern, that's 2215 UTC. You don't have to watch live. It's fun, too. If you do, go in the chat room at irc.twit.tv. But, you know, everything we do really is on demand. That's the whole point of it. And you can find those shows on demand at our website, twit.tv. Uh, you know, just subscribe if you can. Find your favorite podcast application and uh, say, I want to listen to This Week in Tech every week. And that way you'll have it for your Monday morning commute. Uh, if you want to be here in studio and a great studio audience, all you have to do is email tickets at twit.tv. We'll make sure there's a, a chair out for you. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time. Another twit is in the can. Doing the twit. Doing the twit. All right.